Yeah, but bass guitar, dude. Bass guitar left. <laughs> oh. Slap it bass left. Slap at Slap the, the bass. Slap at the bass. Slap at the bass, if you will. Oh, God, I'm so full of chili and noodles. So. <laughs> and pastry. It was like, the thing is, it was so spicy that I'm still kind of mildly unsettled by it. Like, <laughs> my body's still going has, like, hey, man, what the fuck happened? Dude? Has it taken over the unsettled experience that you had from the previous episode? Uh, yeah. Yeah, you feeling okay now? Yeah. Feeling a bit grounded? <laughs> Not allowed to leave my room for a month. Um, grounded. Oh, wow. That really, yep. I didn't notice. Did you get that one? Yeah. It's not yeah. as effective as it used to be. The jokes. Because, no. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Just like fucking so go for it. It's a very pre-computer <laughs> punishment. Yeah. Being, being grounded. It's like, like you go to your room and you don't leave for another week. Oh, fucking thank God. <laughs> literally what I planned on doing <laughs> anyway. It's amazing Baldur's Gate 3 just came out. <laughs> I was going to play it for 100 hours. <laughs> Thank you for giving me permission to do 1, that. 1,000 hours. 1,000. D1,000. <laughs> what, is, what is that? Is that a cross between like John Luke Picard and Arnold Schwarzenegger? <laughs> <laughs> is that what you were going oh. for? The D1,000 must be destroyed, number one. Okay. <laughs> I hate it. He wouldn't want to destroy the D1,000. <laughs> Come with me if you want to live. <laughs> I, I don't understand. <laughs> also, at one point, did uh, did Arnold Schwarzenegger's character say the words, the T-1000 must be destroyed? Like, it's not a quote from I don't, I don't think, think it, he did. He does say the T-1000. It's heavily implied because yeah, it's an unstoppable I'm just saying, if you're like, you, were doing, you were doing like a line from, in scare quotes, in the voice of, in scare quotes, <laughs> John Luke Picard. T-1000. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's just... Just not close. There's no, I don't want to do a good Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Nobody wants to do no, a I mean, good I want to do a bad one. It's funnier if it's bad. Because it's it's funnier when you're like, it's running, get out of here. <laughs> get out of here. Like you don't actually want it to be good because if it's good, it just sounds like him being generally a pretty good dude. I know now why humans cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to do a good <laughs> Um, I've no, decided in this moment. That, uh, oh, gosh. There's no good on I don't even, yeah. Good on Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, he's, a, he's the a, governor. He has a, the, the, governor. the governor. Is he the governor anymore? He's the governor. I was like, you're very long. That was a long time ago. He has a mule. What? Does he not have? No, he has ponies. <laughs> <laughs> why would you jump? If you were unsure, why would the first thing you would think is he has a mule? Well, One mule. Was, okay, so what I want you to do is I need you to say the word mule. A mule. And now say the word pony. Pony. Which... <laughs> I didn't mean to do it in the fucking voice. But that's, no, but okay, so what I meant is, which one's more fun to say? And the answer is mule. In his voice. <laughs> in his, in his well, voice. he doesn't sound like that anymore. A anyway. mule. Does he have because, more of an American accent now? Yes, he does. Because if you listen to... You, you even notice that in the Terminator movies, because in the first one, he's got a really... In fact, he has ba barely any lines. He has like zero lines. Because the English lines. is actually quite bad. Yeah. His enunciation and stuff is very different. And in Terminator 2, he is, he's we, very, very... We talked about that in the minisode, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about the full frontal. Yeah, and then he's got a very different... Need much your clothes, your boots, your motorcycle. <laughs> Give him up. Thanks, cunt. And uh, off he goes. Fucking Aussie, Aussie Terminator. Terminator. <laughs> let's fucking... Let's have it. All right. That's yeah, come with me if you want to live. <laughs> you just want to have a blasted fucking time in the car. T-1000, like, leave. Hey, have you seen this little cunt? <laughs> Piece of shit, this kid. I really want a remake now. I want a remake now of it. Just, just the first one. Oh, just the first one. So not, oh, not the, not no, the no, sequel. No, no, Arnie being the good guy is nice. Yeah, Arnie being it's just a good also, bloke. Like, I mean, we, we, 
I want to talk about it, but we did our whole mini-sode <laughs> on it, so I don't yeah. want to rehash all that, but like... If you want to hear the mini-sode, <laughs> subscribe to our Patreon. Patreon.com slash TMIE podcast. Never let an opportunity <laughs> to, plug. to grind <laughs> go by. You gotta, grind it. You gotta rise and grind. Do you have to rise first? Rise and grind. Do you have to rise first? Or can you grind? I can grind in bed. <laughs> Jim, but we're not that please, kind of podcast. this is a family-friendly podcast. <laughs> I have now said the word cunt three times. Four times Inclusive. Now. Our oh, last inclusive. episode was devoted to the existential void. Yeah. Every ep- every day is it devoted to the existential void, <laughs> yeah. Sam. We're, That's where we we're are. Because we're up and we're grinding. Man. <laughs> you know that scene where the T-1000 is like chasing... <laughs> I don't give a fuck. When T-1000 is chasing... Um, Th- that this boy, John Connor. Oh, and he's on the yeah. bike? John Connor. <laughs> and, he's on a, and like John Connor's on a bike and the T-1000 is running really, really fast, almost catching him. Yeah. Cool fact. That's just him doing that. Yeah. The actor was just fucking crazy no, he fast. Just, no, no, he was really fast. And also he just loved to chase kids. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't, it was just meant to be a day where John Connor's riding his bicycle, just sort of showing his kind of like e- the easy in and outs of the kind of street kid life that he was living. But then that actor just happened to be on set and that motherfucker cannot help but chase a kid. So they just- And they made the whole plot around that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, it was like, you want to be in the movie? Weren't there like, Do you want to be a cool hook hand wait, monster? Like, but weren't there a few times where he like, caught up like he caught up with the motorcycle and got him and I'm like and they had to be like you can't do that <laughs> and that's the end of the movie like in it some takes got he just him. caught John <laughs> I love that like, like what I want that director's cut where he just gets him and then it's like the done. end <laughs> snaps his Terminator neck. 2 judgment oh no it's over okay. <laughs> actually yeah. John Connor is literally dead everything has been pointless <laughs> alternative script what are you writing? Actually, just you just reminded me of something that we writing down. Send, writing. Send <laughs> best friend back in time to fuck mom. <laughs> Don't think about that. Known, Don't right? think about. He that. didn't know because he, his mom wouldn't have told him. So I met this guy once. He was from the future. We smashed. <laughs> and then weirdly, I got pregnant. <laughs> now oh, you're you. here. In what universe would she not have mentioned that? <laughs> He knew Sarah for sure. Sarah Connor is like very close to the chest. Sarah he was Connor. like, see you later. <laughs> Sarah Connor. Especially after her stint in the asylum. That woman's oh, not, yeah, not yeah, trusting yeah. any bitch. Uh. <laughs> I'm sorry, she's not. <laughs> he knew for sure. <laughs> he sent his best friend back in time to fuck his mom. So he knew as soon as he saw his best friend, that's his dad. By name, and I'm when sure. He, no, when he put him in the machine to send him back in time, it's like, Goodbye. Father. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Goodbye, what? Nothing. A pile is a pile, no matter what. No and matter what. In a high what. entropy situation. <laughs>
in a high entropy situation, you're going to end up with a pile of DVDs. Yes. Because, like, if you wanted to fuck it, it was a low entropy situation. I mean, it'd be far it'd less be likely it'd be that somebody interacted and put it in a very neat. So, what you're saying <laughs> is paperback sci-fi tends towards disorder? Like, that's yeah, the- paperback sci-fi <laughs> tends towards the high entropy of the, the pile of, of DVDs. <laughs> <laughs> because that makes sense. And uh, and it's related to what we did last episode yeah. and this episode. And hello and welcome, everybody, to the final episode of season two. We made it. Woo! We did it. Single clap <laughs> is all that was worth, apparently. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the one dude at the rock gig where, <laughs> with like six people in the crowd, song ends, 2,000%. Thank you. And then just whoop. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so end of season two. We did well. Samantha's gone, like properly gone. She will not recover, so it will be Samuel and I for the rest of the episode. <laughs> we have now spent two seasons looking for the joy and stuff, trying to find what's exciting about stuff that we are learning about, that we might not know a lot about, that other people are into and we want to get into as well. And I think we've been quite successful in doing that, uh, especially about bees and shit, man. Like, that, was, that was sick. Yeah. But uh, If we had a trophy, topic, I would give it to you. You would give me a trophy yeah. for bees? <laughs> Doing the podcast. Oh, I think so do a decahedron. You know, it's not actually that expensive to go and get trophies made, Sam. So, <laughs> <Sorry>. um, <sighs> uh, <laughs> but we're deciding, we're deciding to end season two uh, on a banger of a topic, something that we're just absolute fucking nerds on. Because last episode, we had my, my brain was melted by space, the concept of space. Today, we're talking about sci fi. Yes. Yay. And not just like, you know, uh, by accident, because we always do end up talking about Deep Space Nine and shit. No, it's going to be on purpose. This is actually like a concerted effort. There's a pile of sci-fi books and DVDs carelessly piled up in front of us on the table. And Samuel, we're wearing the chief investigator hat, which makes sense to me. Yeah, it just does. It makes a lot of sense. If I was going to put one of us in the sci-fi chief investigator hat, it would be you. That is a great compliment. Oh uh, I am ready for my failure. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have too many notes for this topic. <laughs> how many notes do you have? I don't know how One, many notes. One, two, three, four, five, Give that six, man seven, a round eight. of applause. Eight. Seven or eight pages? Seven or eight pages. I mean, there's about... 2,000 pages of paperback sci-fi. Yeah, we could just oh, read. 2,000 is a bit fucking... Should I read just one of these books instead? Okay, so I'll read... We're reading oh, you picked Isaac a kind of... Asimov's Foundation. You picked a harder read That's a of really this pile? <laughs> okay, it was the one that was in front of me, Sam. So it's like a so sci-fi. Harry Seldon, born in the 11,988th year of the Galactic Era, died 12.069. I'm bored. Let's... Um, <laughs> books, man. <laughs> Uh, what is our relationship to science fiction? How do we feel? It's fucking sick. When did you feel? <laughs> Why do you feel? Are we in church? Okay. <laughs> Why do we feel? Why do you did wa- it feel? How do this, we feel? This feels like an Anglican service because I want to go to sleep. Because it's very slow. Okay. Do you want me to talk about my relationship to sci-fi or are yes. you just going to keep doing this? Confess. Your relationship with sci-fi. I discovered sci-fi because of him. Which one? Him? Him. Him. Samuel. (laughs) Guy in the hat. He bought me for my birthday, for the first birthday that we were together. Very cute. Um, 
What's It Called? To Ride Pegasus by Anna Anna McCaffrey, McCaffrey, which is a brilliant sci-fi novel Mm -hmm. uh, for the talent series. Very, very, very good. Um, And then um, he introduced me to Star Trek and then he, him... This one. That one. It's not even become a capital H. Um, <laughs> is the reason why we're obsessed with Deep Space Nine. So it's your fault. Yeah. Okay, so your relationship with sci-fi is... Your relationship with your husband. Yeah. Okay. Jim? Um, hi, I'm Jim. Um, <laughs> and sci-fi is like a comfort food. Uh, mm, it's a good snack. For me, because I eat books. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I just, it, just because, like, I, I don't know whether it was just because of the kind of things that we grew up with. You know, I mean, like, we obviously grew up post Star Wars. We grew up in a Star Wars yeah. universe. And, like, we also grew up post, or at least for, in my case, during a lot of the sort of next gen and onward Star Trek. Mm-hmm. So that was, like, a part of my upbringing. And so science fiction has sort of been ever present in that way culturally around the things that we do. So it's like, often that's what I'll reach for if I'm looking for something you know, evocative or something that I'm excited about. You know what I mean? Even if it's like an artier kind of dramatic film, like Arrival or something like that. Mm. It's like when it has a basis in speculative or science fiction, that for me gives it the juice that I need. It's a special sauce. Yeah, really true. Yeah. I think I think for me it's like halfway between comfort food stuff and like some sort of like thoughtful stimulation where it's kind of making you think about something. Yeah, right. So it's, that's just a weird thing to combine um, when you think about it. But no, I... I think Star Wars is really worth mentioning as well um, because I just need something like a nice, relaxing, confronting, complicated (laughs) experience. (laughs) (laughs) It's like for ages we were sitting watching um, The Next Generation, Star Trek The Next Generation, and just like, ah, the best way to unwind, watching people make critical, difficult, (laughs) ethical decisions (laughs) in rooms. Uh, (laughs) And it is relaxing. It fucking is. But yeah, no, I mean, in terms of childhood associations, like Star Wars is a really big part of that. Because when you and I were growing up, there weren't, I actually just am old enough to remember a time when there weren't prequels. Yes, when Phantom Menace came out. Like yeah, in fact, I was, the, that, yeah. I was the target audience what of Phantom Menace. What a joyous life you guys have No, met. I was because I was about seven, eight years old. Okay. So, and a boy. So I was like, this is literally, boy. <laughs> boy, this is literally like the marketing schema for like who should buy these oh, that's toys. Right. That's because that's why at the very beginning of the film, like everyone turns to the camera and they point, they go, you boy, <laughs> boy in the third row. <laughs> I always thought that was an odd choice, but now I understand. Mm. Can you imagine? But yeah, anyway, I but can. Like, um, that's something that you know we definitely grew up with. Um, the proper VHS versions where the yes, Samantha. Sorry, I just remembered something. Okay. From my childhood. Yes. So my my parents really liked the Matrix and uh, the, the Terminator, but it was one of those things that I just because it was on and I wasn't watching it consciously, so I don't think of that as like being into sci-fi. Yeah. But I did watch those when I, I was see. growing up, so I just wanted to flag that. Yeah, interesting. I but was also, in high school when The Matrix also, came out. Um, Thanks very much. I don't remember a time when the prequels went around, so. Yeah, right. That's sad. Yeah. But yeah, Star Wars is actually an interesting one. So the first thing when you think about science fiction as a topic to talk about is is, is unfortunately definitional. We must face we the definitional conflict. <laughs> <laughs> Why do we keep coming back to this to one Anglican priest at our school? Um, <laughs> that was giving me we must climb God. the mountain of conflict. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> From um, In the Loop. In the, in the loop. loop, yeah, that's right. Oh, God. It's Mr. Collins. Mr. Collins. Amazing. Great. Not from In the Loop. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, we're speaking in code that only you understand. Yeah, this is absolute madness. Um, yes, yeah, so 
I mean, like science fiction is a really dumb label when you think about it because it's kind of tautological. Like if you think about like most common definition for science fiction is just space science <laughs> fiction stuff that we call science fiction. It's basically mm. like, Oh yeah, it's literature and movies and shows and stuff, which are either set in space or use time travel or use technology in some way or mm-hmm. this and this and that. But that's just really a thematic grouping. It doesn't actually tell us what genre it's in, especially when there's things like, so star Wars is a really nice little um, boundary point. Because it's like an adventure movie. It's an, it's an adventure, adventure movie. It's not really science fiction. In fact, a lot of it is built by magic yeah, and yeah. wizards. Yeah, essentially. It's more like a space fantasy mm. and belongs to like early space opera. Yes. Which is self-consciously done from George Lucas' sake anyway. Yeah, when he's not completely copying uh, Nazi propaganda films. Um, <laughs> or like why? fucking with films to the point where they're unrecognizable. <laughs> it's the, so in the Nazi propaganda film, is that the bit at the end, the really shit scene at the yeah, end yeah, of the Yeah, yeah, when, when they're when... getting the medals and stuff and Chewbacca doesn't get one because they're racist and also because like <laughs> it's just it's shot for shot from Eleni Riefenstahl. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, just like, oh, why? Why? I don't know. Real recognize real. Like, it's fucking, I have no idea. <laughs> anyway, so I dove right in to the literary theory about science fiction. Okay, right. Um, which we'll Skiffy. touch on ever so briefly. What's happened? Only in this, I fell, as I told you, I've dubbed. You delved? <laughs> the word? I've delved too greedily and too deep. And now your voice has changed. <laughs> and we're stuck like this forever now. This is the end. Um, and it's a really cool definition. Okay. So the first one I want to think about is that it's an elaborate thought experiment. That every science fiction thing is a thought experiment that is a game of what if based off the one edition, a story device of some kind. So the what if is like, Star Trek is a good one. So we can say what if um, there's no poverty and there's warp, warp speed. Yeah. It's the, basically the whole premise is that. We can travel through space really fucking far and forget, stop thinking about money so much. We're, yeah. we're at peace. Let's go. H.G. Wells, the time machine. That's, it's like the literary term is, is Nova, Nova more Nova. Okay. Um, but whatever. <laughs> like it's like for, the central. For like the central what if sort of concept. It's yeah. like in for H.G. Wells, it was a time machine. Yeah. What if you could Martian go back invasion. in time? Yeah, yeah. What if you could go back in time or go forward in time as it, as he did? Like, what would happen as he then? Did, as the he did, as he did, H.G. Wells with his actual time machine. Yeah, didn't f- it certainly felt that way, didn't it? What a writer! Um, really drew you in. Yeah, just, just drawn straight from life, isn't it? Yeah. So this one, this definition fits your sort of a certain types of sci-fi very well. They're very science-driven, like Foundation, which you referenced before. Yes. Um, whereas, kind of, it feels a bit like an actual experiment where they're actually trying to control, you know, variables and think about what would happen if, if we had this technology or mm. something. But not all science fiction is like that, as I think you're going to talk about later, Sam. Um, talk about whenever you need me to talk about. <laughs> it. Not all sci-fi is like that. In the chamber. So, a more literary definition of that is to think of science fiction as a metaphor rather than an experiment. Okay. So this is kind of suits the allegorical side of sci-fi. So if sci-fi is a metaphor, so a term that um, Robert Scholes is going off here is structural fabulation, which is such a lit theory term. Um, But he says, quote, it's a fiction that offers us a world clearly and radically discontinuous from the one we know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, returns to confront that known world in some mm-hmm. cognitive way. And I really like that. That's how I think of science fiction. Yeah, yeah. Because it's always somehow... It's like a mirror up to the world. ...about now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love that because it's really interesting because it's actually in some ways a more realist genre. 
than a lot of other and things like fantasy. And to quote from the good book of Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, when they're talking about the eugenics wars and stuff. So it's like, yeah, yeah here we are in this like hyper-positive futuristic thing where like money is no object and we're all about research and peace and stuff like that. Uh, but also between where you are, audience, and us now, whole bunch of eugenics wars and fucked up shit, sort your shit out. Yeah. That kind of thing. But sci-fi can't just You're be metaphor. You're in the dark ages. So if sci-fi was just metaphor, any allegory would be considered under that umbrella as well. So we need to tighten the definition slightly. Okay. So like Animal Farm, for example, yes. by George Orwell, that's a classic allegory. It's not science fiction, obviously, but it's using a lot of metaphor and going part for part. It's like something else. Mm-hmm. Um, but sci-fi doesn't work that way. The thing, the premise is always something that's not fantastical. It's actually something that in universe makes sense. So to us, a warp drive is fantastical and pseudoscientific because it, you, faster than light speed is impossible. Mm-hmm. So any, so there's warp speed is, is your what if, and then that is actually make that actually makes sense within their universe. So let's let's say like there's um there's a book I don't know very well in the fifties called The Invisible Man, that's all about um, prejudice against African Americans right. in America. And uh, he, he's like invisible, so no one can see him. It's like a kind of metaphor for yeah, blackness okay. and stuff in that time period. But that's a very different example. That's like that is using this extraordinary literary device to like go, this is sort of magical to kind of go, this is a metaphor for something else. Right. While sci-fi goes, oh, I invented a, an invisible visibility thing and it turns you invisible and it makes perfect rational sense within this universe. It's scientific in this universe, but- Let me explain using some made up words why this yeah, works. Yeah, exactly, some techno babble. <laughs> yeah. But then that allows the entire story to become a metaphor for something else. Right. To become a metaphor about class. Or okay, so can you explain the William Riker clip show at, in season <laughs> two of The Next Generation? How does that fit in with the allegory? Uh, or poorly. was it because it was a writer's strike I and they had to chuck some shit together? <laughs> I think it's going to be door number two for that one. Shame. Yeah. Yeah, so basically, you know, to, like, to sum up all this, like if you think of just sci-fi as something that's ultimately a symbolic form of, of storytelling, but it's realist in every other respect, mm. and that makes it very different to fantasy. So if you know the sci-fi slash fantasy, what's the difference between sci-fi and fantasy? It's that. It's the fact that we're actually experimenting with something which is supposed to make sense. And is, yeah. Within a scientific. It's like I'm grounded yeah. in reality yeah. in the construction of the world that you've made. And no matter what, it's meant to come back to us. So you could have that in the context of like the adventurous research stories of space travel in Star Trek. Or in like Asimov's case, stuff like iRobot and whatever. Yeah. Where um, like it, it's an exploration of. Uh, you know, like essentially AI yeah. and going like, what are the rules of like the ro- the rules of robotics yes, and stuff like yeah. that? Like, you know, at what point does this thing become human or at what point is it, you know, and it's always yeah. like, yeah. that's just an exploration of the very singular idea with a plot around it. Yeah, and like the central premise of iRobot is, is basically what defines you as being human yeah. because you've got a robot who can- I'm pretty dream. sure you're okay as long as you keep Will Smith's wife's name out your mouth. <laughs> I think it, like- <laughs> Also, so long as you can figure out which of the squares has traffic lights in it, you're good. Yeah, you're good. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, one of the one of the <laughs> criticisms of sci-fi as well is that it's kind of it's trope laden. 
Like it's, it's right. kind of, yeah, it's like, it's another book. What's in this book? Oh, it's time travel. Or, oh, it's a spaceship that can go fast and light. Uh, or it's like, oh, this, it's a dystopian future. Like, yeah, like, ooh, original we're doing, we're doing today, a time travel they? episode. Yeah, like, that's, yeah, yeah. that's awesome. But yeah. the, the, yeah. Like, the mirror episodes, um, mirror universe episodes. Give me the mirror universe episodes. Suck. Do it. Put a beard on them. Yeah, like, <laughs> you know. Give them a weird goatee. <laughs> give them a beard. I really like the response to that and going like, well, these aren't really tropes. It's like grammar. This, this is like the metaphorical grammar of science fiction that's okay. become so established that if you have a robot that's yearning for humanity, that's all you need. And that's like a like a little piece of a metaphor that you can quickly understand. It's like, it's like idiom. It's like a little piece it's of short, shorthand. Yeah. Yeah. It's a metonym. A metonym. Yeah. That's a nice word. Metonym. Darmok Angelad. Yeah. And so you, you can speak in this metaphorical language. Yeah. And that's what genres do as they grow, I think. But I think it's particular to sci-fi. I think it's really interesting that I heard sci-fi be referred to simply as genre fiction. Like they don't even like they're just like it's engaging. Eh, in yeah, just like I, I don't know, man. Eh. Genre fiction <laughs> because and like oftentimes there are sort of weird moments where a book is kind of classified as science fiction, but if you actually were to dive into it, you'd kind of go like I don't know, it's just kind of in space, like or it's just, <laughs> it's yeah. like, or it's just kind of in the future. Like I don't. Yeah. I'm not fully buying that this is doing what sci-fi. Yeah, like, like would you call, for yeah. example, like one of the many awesome post-apocalypse on Earth stories? Mm. Like tomorrow in the not tomorrow in the world. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but like mm. you know what I mean. So it's like it's, it, the, the world is decayed. The world that we once knew is gone, and there's people surviving on the planet. Would you, for example, call that a science fiction? Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I Mad don't know. Ma- are you doing like Mad Max? I guess. I don't know. I guess, but that's it's just so borderline. But also, it's like, like self-identity. Like, what do what do the creators? I say? have a question for you though, because I've also heard speculative fiction, science fiction. Are they the yeah. same thing? Are they different concepts? Can something be speculative fiction without it engaging in a science fiction trope? Yes, because the thing is, is that there is crossover here because science fiction is it's they're all in a family of fantastical fiction. Like just so, fabulous I fiction. Suppose, like, it's just great. <laughs> I suppose in that case, like things like dystopia, yeah. dystopian utopian fiction isn't necessarily inherently science fiction. Things like, sorry, I'm just going to quickly burp. Fucking do it. Ah, that didn't happen. Um, things, oh, no. <laughs> wait, where is it? Like 1984. Yes. Is a really great example of something that is speculative fiction. It is, mm. it is, Fantastical, it's compulsory, dystopian. <laughs> Everyone's read it in high school, but it's, it's not compulsory. science fiction in the same way that something like Brave New World by and I'm using these examples because they're kind of almost contemporaneous yes. with each other. Um, Brave New World by um, Aldous Huxley is very much a science fiction because of the way the technology drives yeah. the world. It's the nova. It's the the what if yes. bit. The what if we and in, could in Brave con- New World's case, it's the technology of um, like. They, they farm human babies. Well, one second. Basically. I have some, actually. I d- so, so the Nova being like a concept that doesn't exist that we're exploring yeah. essentially. Like yeah, essentially. So, it's- yeah, the whole society is based on uh, deliberately engineered reproductive hierarchy where f- embryos are deliberately engineered to either have lower or higher intelligence. Yeah, okay. And so this is from 32. That, yeah, and there's, the there's like an org... It's sort of meant to reflect, like, I think, in this time, the political ideology of um, organicism was really, really prevalent, particularly in British 
mm. uh, politics and the idea that people serve a role and everyone has their place in the in the hierarchy of needs of like people need to do these jobs and there'll be people who are best suited for Cast that job. system Basically, sorts, and yeah. so it's kind of taking that idea and also taking the idea of... The consu- last name isn't Baker for no reason. <laughs> Give me the bread. <laughs> <laughs> and it's sort of, and it's kind of almost bringing to light the idea of like, okay, if we truly believe that this is the extent, this is the horrific extent that that could become. Yeah, right. Is the idea of social engineering. And also the entire world is based on like a veneration of Henry Ford. And the idea of consumerism and capitalism. No, he's like he's like eviscerating Henry Ford in this book. Yeah, fucking yeah. Literary. and it's kind of one they of those. They, the people worship him. Well, they don't in a way, but it's like it's sort of a weird thing. Read where the he's book, like, guys. I have. I'm not talking to you. <laughs> um, I'm talking geez. to the figurative audience. But it's <laughs> guys read the book. But the interesting thing, I think Brave New World is a really interesting example of how also science fiction can be attacking a particular time period and then come back round being relevant. Many, many, oh my God. many, so, many years later. In Brave New World, and I read this about three years ago, I think. In Brave New World, they all take tablets all the time called Soma to keep them calm. Calm. And to kind of, it's basically like a serotonin thing. Like they feel kind of calm and happy. But the thing is, is they've, they've actually grown very, very small attention spans. And their television sets, just a reminder, this is from 1932. So he's also projecting the idea of television sets. Mm-hmm. So there's TV they screens. They barely had radio. <laughs> <laughs> they barely had radio. TV screens and that only show things for a few seconds at a time before flipping through. And they flip through unendingly. And when they're faced with something that isn't that scrolling, as we would call it, um, they start to panic and desperately need the Soma drug again, which is often nicknamed the Gram. I am having a panic attack. (laughs) I just don't understand. (laughs) I don't understand. (laughs) When I was reading, I was absolutely shocked to the core that a critique of mass media... From nearly a hundred years before ago, before media, yeah. before it really existed, <laughs> yeah. was so cutting. I mean, it's a whole but it's a weird fucking book, and well, arguably pretty like, conservative in many like, ways. Well, <laughs> this is the problem. This is the interesting thing, and this is why I wanted to talk about Brave New World. So, like, the society obviously has these structures and constraints. It's also because reproductivity is controlled by the state. You can freely have sex, and you don't have to worry about any of that. Like, but you, that's presented as a bad thing. Well, it's presented as in well, it's presented as a bad thing because the person who's the center of the story is outside of this world and doesn't buy into it. For the people who are in the world, it's sexually liberal. Yeah. But it's kind of iffy. The problem that I have with science fiction is depending on, like, especially this older stuff, it's hard to tell if it's critique or if it's, yeah. like, if, is, it, is, it like crit- is it critiquing this kind of world or is it, is it using this to sort of go, like, see, this is what you think the world is, but it's not? That's th- Actually, that's a really key thing that I read about sci-fi as well, that Allegory, it's not really allegory because allegory in a technical definition is much more like Orwell, Animal Farm is the best example. It's like one for one. You know, this bit is that bit. That bit is that bit. This hole is the same as that hole. Do you fucking get it? <laughs> yeah. Do you get it? It couldn't be less subtle. But because sci-fi is just so metaphoric and it's in its foundations, there's just so many interpretations to be made from it. Right. Maybe that's why I personally find it very exciting to watch sci-fi because you can often, unless it's extremely ham-handed and shithouse, yeah. <laughs> you could actually go like, wow, that actually made me think and I might disagree with what happened. I might think differently. Like, I think that's what makes it really interesting. Yeah, and that's why like the the ending of some of... The endings can be really challenging. So like the ending of... um. 
Brave New World, I'm pretty sure, is like super frustrating. I can't remember the, this uh, point. I actually read most of that book and stopped because I had a nervous breakdown. Like are, we, are, breakdown. We, are we spoiling this shit for people um, right now? This book gonna... was I mean, look, published in 19... Spoilers, what, like art is dead. People are busy. <laughs> art is dead. Everything is terrible. Um, yeah. And it was just so violently depressing that it set me into a stupor for some time. Um, and not... then I stopped reading it. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, so, yeah, be careful reading this book. A similar thing happened to me when I read 1984 as well, where I kind of just like, I just, it became so horrific. that. And I yet you have no it. problem with Taylor Swift's 1989. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, really, I'm part of the problem. You really. are, indeed. I'm <laughs> I, the problem, it's me. It's me. <laughs> okay, now that we have... Now that we have discussed the definition of science fiction, what's happening? I, what voice do you think this is? I don't. It's, it's, it's getting just, older. It feels, <laughs> I'm getting older. Is this the Nova for this, a new story? This is science fiction. I hate okay, it. this is science fiction. I really hate what is this. it metaphoric of? We who knows. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now the thing is, is that this genre has only meaningfully existed for like I don't know 120 years, but. We can go back in time and go, well, people have been writing about fantastical stuff for a really, really long time. We can go back in time, indeed. We can. Yeah, (laughs) with our buddy H.G. Wells. Look H.G. Wells, he fucking did it. Hey, Sam, this is what it feels like. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess we're talking shit through the last episode. (laughs) Um, So this is the category of proto-sci-fi, sci-fi, as we might call it. So basically, they're fantastical stories throughout history but they're before science. So it's kind of hard to call something sci-fi if it predates like what we call science. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is only really so a thing the, from the It has the, the same 1600s. kind of flavor as sci-fi, like the same kind of tone. Okay. Now these, they, yeah. these are up for debate. Okay. Can we debate them today? <laughs> Can we debate? You may. Yeah. You may. So the earliest argued science fiction is from 2100 BCE. <laughs> yeah, I already have a problem. <laughs> the Epic of Gilgamesh. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We well, otherwise known as He Who Saw the Abyss. Um, <laughs> oh, that's a better title. Brother. This is like a UK-US cover situation. That's Apparently a better title. the word that means the abyss isn't translating very well, but it means basically the knowledge that the character gained from the fountain of wisdom. Being yep. space? So the yeah, Gilgamesh, it has they search for immortality. They fight a bull of the heavens, and there's an apocalyptic flood, which many have argued that is, um, well, firstly, it's likely the source of the Noah flood myth as well. Oh. It's like a root of a bunch of biblical stuff because um, it's a very old story. Noah. There's like um, there's like a lot of like in Greek and Roman mythology as well, a lot of flooding myths. Yeah, because there was a massive flood in Mesopotamia and people talked about it a lot, I think. Yeah, it's a big um, deal. It was but big also that uh, it's kind of an apocalyptic story, which was, I don't know, and they sort of say, well, it kind of reminds you of post-apocalyptic sci-fi stories. Right. I suppose that's, I would say that's After more... After the end of the world. <laughs> I would say that's more speculative than science, than science. Doesn't I'm, it happen in space? He fights a, I mean, he fights a space bull, I guess. But the bull comes to them. But I mean, still, oh, well, yeah. it's, it's a space bull. Second. But no, I mean, I'm going to give it points towards sci-fi because it is referenced in one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek The Next, <laughs> Next Generation. Generation. <laughs> okay, you know what? Is I'm that in. number four? Yeah, I think it's, and I've also already made a Darmok reference as well. <laughs> okay. So it's in that episode where Picard is trying to talk to the, can't remember the name of the species. Neither can I. But they, the ones. Galaxians? No, no, the only ones that they speak to, they speak in, in idiom, they speak in, in metaphor. <laughs> and it's the Darmok and Gelada Tanagra episode. Unmissable, incredible. incredible piece of sci-fi. Gotta watch it. But one of the ways that when Picard kind of figures out what is happening and the way that this guy is trying to communicate with him, he tries to share some of, human stories as well 
in parallel, one being the story of Gilgamesh uh, in parallel to this guy's story of Darmok and Jalad. Um, so I'm going to say, on account of that episode being one of my favorite episodes of all TV of all time. Tamarians. Um, Tamarians. Um, yes, yes, it's fucking yes. sci-fi. Right. <laughs> okay, now, so the, the Indian ancient poetry is a little bit less hazy. So Ramayana is a Sanskrit text from, that's a big date range, 700 BCE uh-huh. to 200 CE, somewhere around then. Right, okay. <laughs> Just a couple of, like, 900 years. <laughs> yes. That's a 900-year period. Yep. Um, the story includes uh, what's called Vimano. It's like huge flying cities. They're these city-sized machines that destroy other cities using advanced weaponry. I like read the Death shit Star. out of that book. That's sick. Wait, what? What? Yep. The Someone fuck? was just fucking... He got too high. He got that quill. Like, he, got, he got that He's got game. that quill. <laughs> Shoot me in the head. Um, Mahabharata, 700 to 800 BCE. That's a better range. That's about 100 years. Um, is a ki- and a king named Kadumi. He travels to heaven to speak with the creator. But when he returns... He shoots words, him mate. with a laser. When he returns <laughs> to... He shoots him with a laser beam. <laughs> he returns to his kingdom, but hundreds of years have passed. Oh! So he's now far oh, in the future. That's so sick. You and so me it's like, like time Sam's dilation. like... A hype guy for fucking like pre- ancient sci-fi. This yeah, is okay. no, but this this is legit sci-fi. This is yeah. like this is awesome. Yeah, and we don't hear about this stuff often. I think we should because it's it's just again we tend to think oh there's the sci-fi tradition in the West, so let's follow it in the West. But like this is amazing. Um, so there's some Japanese ones as well. So around 720 CE, you have um Urashimi ta- Urashimi Shama. No, Jesus Christing live. <laughs> oh, <fuck> it. <laughs> do it. Do it live. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Urashima Taro. Um, a, a fisherman <laughs> finds an underwater palace and he swims down to find it and Sick. is given gifts. Um, a special gift of a of a chest. Um, but then returns home and it's 300 years in the future. This is a continual theme. Um, is, yeah, just go away and wait a minute. What if everything had changed? And because this is, because this is Japanese folklore, uh, it's unnecessarily harmful to the protagonist. So I see. he opens up like the chest that was given to him by the turtles or whatever was down there. I don't remember. <laughs> um, and it like turns him into an old man. Now mm. he's a grizzled old man in the old man future. Very sad. So it's basically like nothing <laughs> happened except he forgot his life. It's like it's an allegory for like, you know, dementia or something. Yeah. Yeah. The fear of losing who you are. All this, all of that feels like sci-fi to me. Uh, Tale of the Bamboo Cutter, 900 to 1000 CE, also Japanese. Um, they're cutting down bamboo stalks and they find a baby inside a bamboo stalk and it grows very quickly into a princess from the moon who has been sent there to protect her from a celestial war. Yeah, that's sci-fi. That's sci-fi. Lots and lots of people try to hit on her and like be suitors, and she's like, "Fuck off!" And then, and then she just leaves, and then she goes back to the moon. Wow, that's sci-fi. That's sci-fi. I mean, I think there's a Studio Ghibli film about it. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't remember the name of the film. What the fuck? Yeah, it's sick. I mean, he would. Okay, so and then there's also one in uh, <laughs> one thousand and one nights, Arabian Nights. Um, is that what like that? I said? That is that what it's called? Yes, one thousand and one. One thousand and one nights. It just looks like somebody going lol. So what? <laughs> what? 
I'm not familiar with Arabian Nights. I'm not familiar, which is why I'm surprised to learn that it includes humanoid automata and a robotic (laughs) horse which can travel to the sun. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that what the prince, the king of thieves, Aladdin, the king of thieves? Yeah. Is that not stemming from... No, that's like the uh, turtle with the thing on its back and Robin Williams' back is the genie and uh, unhinged as fuck. I'm pretty sure it's based off 1001... No. No, isn't Aladdin from No, it's there? like Ali Barber and the 40 Thieves. Oh, it's the 40 Thieves. Yeah. There's a lot of stories in that one. Yeah. yeah. But there's also a robotic horse. I think the only reason you're the thinking sun. Aladdin is because of the, the pun that they put in the song. Arabian Nights. Yeah, probably. It's like Arabian Day. In that okay. absolute fucking banger of a song. Yeah. So now we've got a new, let's fast forward a few, like a thousand years or so. Okay. 18th century Europe. In the manner of a sci-fi. Yes. So in the 1700s Europe... And sorry, 1600s Europe. Sorry, I wrote the wrong century down. Um, we have Johannes Kepler, okay, which we mentioned last episode. Very briefly, I was like, the he's bloke, not important. Bloke in, <laughs> he invented in lenses. Responsible for the lens. Yeah. He gives a shit and about him. The he wrote a text called Somnium or the Dream in 1608, published posthumously in 1634, um, which accounts Kepler's dream of a daemon. A demon? Yeah, I just like saying demon because it was spelled with an A. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> a demon. A demon. A demon. It tells the story of a dream Kepler had. Of a demon summoning a family <laughs> to the moon. <laughs> um, the people who, the most prominent people who've counted this as the first sci-fi include Asimov and Carl Sagan. Oh, we can trust those um, motherfuckers. So the cool thing is it includes a whole bunch of realistic scientific elements like the fact that the family is sedated because otherwise they might be in shock from the force of getting up into the stars. Oh. Which is kind of cool. Also, it features the... I didn't know about this until now, but there's a... um, They need to slow down when they hit the Lagrange point, which is sort of the point. It's part of the three-body problem nonsense that we're Mm -hmm. talking about in the space episode where if that's you have to slow down at that point, otherwise you're going to crash through or past the moon. Yeah. So... That's included in that. That's what they exploit when they're trying to do slingshots. But like, Wait, when, when you, was this? Uh, I didn't talk about the Lagrange thing, but we talked about the three-body problem. 1608. What did he know? What did he know? It was all a dream. That's the end of the story. <laughs> I think it was. I think this happened to him. I think he was abducted. It, yeah, the, it was all a dream twist. It was not just like a cheesy way to end it. It was for his own protection. Like, oh, none of this was real. Oh, it's crazy okay, dreams. I know I started with Dear Diary, but this, it was, it's fiction all along. So I've called this category early but weird. It's before we have canon sci-fi. Yeah. But it's, it's so it's arguable, but it's, it's early and it's very, very strange. This is probably my favorite one, which is The Man in the Moon. Moon spelt with an the E at the end. In the Not moon. to be confused with H.G. Wells' The Man, The, the First, first Man in, in the, the Moon. moon. <laughs> this, I don't know what the in is. Anyway, The Man in the Moon with an E at the end was written by a Church of England bishop named Francis Godwin in 1638. Right. He was literally a priest and science fiction author, which is really fucking weird, isn't it? Anyway, the story is about a Spanish Dear man. I fucking hate my jobs. <laughs> <laughs> about a Spanish man who travels to the moon with an E at the end to dis- <laughs> moon <laughs> to discover um, a, a, a race of men called the Lunas. 
okay. who live upon the moon. Yep. And of course, they're a group of happy Christian folk. Of course, of naturally. Course. On account of Christ's far-reaching love. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, and of course, they're Protestant. Because um, <laughs> there's this whole thing, apparently, there's this whole thing where the main character is like, says like, Hail Mary or something to them and they get confused, but they're otherwise Christians who so saying that they're not Catholic. That's because that he's the Church of England. Yeah, so funny. He couldn't have possibly it's written the so Wait, wait, wait. wait. So, so you're saying, funny. is this Christian propaganda? I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't see how this could be. It's very um, long-winded. <laughs> yes. what, what era was but this? The, yeah, this was 1638. Yeah, so like Christians weren't being encouraged to read at all. So I wouldn't worry about <laughs> no, it. You can write whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the Lunars only spoken tones, in sing-songy tones. And he actually wrote musical notation for like, the tones right. of phrases, which people later translated. Anyway, this is a cold, crazy thing about Wait, this book. what? Yeah. Yep. The you had me. How did they translate <laughs> something that was not real? Um, yeah, good question. So what was cool is the book features Copernican physics okay. and astronomy. So why are you looking at me like that? Because that's insane. Okay. Um, so like, get that though. 1638 and a priest is writing a science fiction novel featuring Copernican astronomy. Yeah. It's kind of wild. Yeah, like there's a marrying of like, because I mean, we can all say that the religion was pretty anti-science. For a long time. For a long time. Up to and including now. Up to and potentially <laughs> including now. We have reached the canon period that we can actually say is sci-fi, 19th century. Woo! No, the most that generally, is the canon actually, period. The not, I just wooed the 19th century. I take that. Back. <laughs> it was Hell a bad yeah. time. Good for time for everyone. everybody. Every single person. Had I retract one the, the Roaring 1800s. <laughs> I retract it. I don't know. Railroads are pretty good. Uh, <laughs> are they now? <laughs> oh yeah. Um, generally considered to be the first science fiction novel by most is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Oh my God, can I tell you facts I about Mary Shelley? Yeah. <laughs> is it time for me to tell you facts about Mary Shelley? Yep. Yes, but only after I say that it was published in 1818 Yep. at the age of 20. At the age of 20 from everybody's favourite big titty goth girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> she is the biggest goth girl. You're not even yeah, wrong. I know, okay, I know. So she's the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft, right? Mm -hmm. And she was conceived in a graveyard. Yeah. Yep. And that is why she is the way that she is, which is top tier bitch. Yep. <laughs> and that's all my facts. <laughs> You're done. You just wanted to mention the graveyard I thing, did, didn't you? I did. I yeah. did. Also, the. Um, Loved a graveyard. Mary Wollstonecraft was not married to her father. <gasps> I'm glad she wasn't married to her father. That would be fucked up. <laughs> So Mary Shelley is often, it's like a strong candidate for the first sci fi novel. I mean, just think about what's the Nova, what's the what if part of Frankenstein. I, I keep mean, saying Frankenstein. Yeah, Mel Brooks has <laughs> fucked your life completely, hasn't he? Um, um, Frankenstein is the, the ability to, to raise, raise the dead. And yeah, create yeah. a life, to create a sentience. That was her yeah. original idea. She was she just basically had the original idea was Here's this a mad doctor flesh homunculus life. Let's go. And then and regrets an, it. That was the premise. Yeah, because it's, it's an, gothic Isn't it like an allegory? Yeah, gothic horror. Isn't it like an allegory about the idea of like rejection and like hubris? Sounds good to me. And like society. Oh, and also, because it's like, because also Frankenstein's was the doctor. Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, yep. Just want to make everyone mm -hmm. be aware of it. Everyone, yeah, yeah. Most people know. No, well, I don't know. <laughs> no, 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 no. Really? No, no, no. And I've made the mistake. I'll fully admit it. Yeah. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. This is a um, truthful podcast. Honesty. So obviously Mary Shelley didn't, you know, wasn't writing using a term that didn't exist yet. So it's like, it's not like it's self-conscious science fiction. So we yeah. have to wait a little while for that, but it's a strong candidate. Another candidate that said 
like almost as much, I think, is Jules Verne. Okay. So Jules Verne Which was one? writing in the 1860s. So, so we're talking Journey to the Center of the Earth, oh. which is in 64. Um, in which they go into the volcanic chute and eventually they find plesiosaurs from Earth to the moon in 1865. And that's actually just traveling to the moon. Uh, so Via space in a rocket. And not in the moon this time. Is it in a rocket? I think it is in a rocket. I haven't oh. read from Earth to the moon. 20,000 leagues under the sea Across in the ocean floor. I've been yeah, yeah, we, <laughs> we, we, we must we stress. I, <laughs> 20,000 leagues along the sea. <laughs> we may now clarify once again. <laughs> but the thing is, is that like these are, I've, I've never, I've never really agreed with the classification of Jules Verne as the sci-fi author because it's kind why? of fantasy more. Because it's really just a, their adventure novels. Yeah. Like okay. the best example is, um, not, is uh, not Journey to the Center of the Earth, beep, 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 Around the World in 80 Days. Yeah, but I, no one would classify that as science fiction. No, uh, but even Journey to the Center of the Earth is like, I don't know. I, I just, think, okay, so it feels I, more like I, an adventure novel to me. I can understand why someone would say it's science fiction because he does go to a lot of effort to sort of explain how that could potentially exist. Right, but if we're talking about if we're talking center. about the difference between a premise and the nova. Yes. So it's like you know, yeah. like, so for example, we're talking about Star Wars not necessarily being science fiction. The premise of it is this adventure is set in space with space yeah. wizards. Like in this context, it's not like here is this fundamental thing that is the core of the story. It is different. Yeah. yeah. You know. No, I, yeah, I agree with that. And that's but why as I, you, but I think you the I love what you said though, because Vern is like so High attention to detail. Yes. Because like, he was like an art. He never traveled anywhere. All this travel stuff that he wrote. He's like a, a, an armchair writer. Like Aww, maybe he wrote. He, was he nervous? No there, were, no, there were reasons for it. I don't remember. Was he anxious? I think it was I think it was bad. Like his health or someone else's health. Aww. I don't know. I don't remember actually. So it was escapism. But, yes. Yeah. And so he was writing this stuff in insane detail. That's why Around the World in 80 Days, I think it's a good example of that. Because the amount of detail that goes into making that happen like ticket wise that oh. he puts into the book and tells you at length. 20,000 Leagues <laughs> Under the Sea has pages upon pages describing the sea life in the p ocean that you're at. Like I'm talking like skippable, like just lists of fish Nice in the book. And he describes a giant squid, which I'm not even sure that they've even, they'd even seen a giant <laughs> squid at that point, but he described it and it's, I mean, there's also, like, really gross racial stuff in there, too. But yes, there is. There always is. Um, right. But, like, the amount of detail he goes into being, like, we are in this part of the world. This is the sea life that would be there. I'm going to describe it in detail. <laughs> so um, this brings us to a much more obvious, like, probably, like, you could easily say the first self-conscious sci-fi author who was a great contrast to Jules Verne is H.G. Wells. Yes. Um, H.G. Wells is writing a whole bunch of stuff in the 1890s that is lower on the detail, higher on the social commentary. Right. Can I just... No, but you're soon. 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 Hold your fire. <laughs> soon. So, like, there's the time machine. So the time machine is in 1895. Um, and it's probably the most famous one because it invents the trope of the time machine, just like um, Mary Shelley invented the mad scientist. Um, so, yeah, like, no concept of a machine that helps you travel through time existed before that. Yeah, and also, well, even if there was time travel, the, the coining of the word time machine, compared with a time, time machine, machine yeah. it's always a time machine. We but just call it that. Yeah, was he true. also the first one to talk about the, the implications of time travel as well? Because didn't he have the whole thing with, like, the butterfly wing... Was that in that book? I don't remember. I just remember because they go... The whole thing is they go in far into the future and 
Oh, mankind has been split into two castes. And oh, is it in forwards? Yes, forwards. Yes. Oh, I thought it was into the past. The past? No, it's <laughs> not into the past. It's into, into the four because it's basically a, a dystopia almost. Oh. Showing that like there's the upper class people who have become um, like genteel and fair and the, the Morlocks which have become... Savage. Savage and... Well, it's, it's very brown. racial. The boy, <laughs> pretty brown. Um, yeah, and... Unfortunate. Yeah, so the thing is, is that H.G. Wells was huge into eugenics. Nice. But the thing, the whole yeah. point of the story is to be a, about Disappointing. class. About the dangers of class is the point of the story. Okay. So he doesn't talk about how the time machine works like Jules Verne probably would want to. Yeah. He just kind of skips straight In to the, the bit of where we talk about this. the man. <laughs> um, we also got the, the other one worth mentioning, I think definitely in this chronology, is The War of the Worlds in 1897 slash 8. I love that book. That book goes off. War of the Worlds. This one's been adapted to a lot of movies. There was the one with Tom Cruise in it, which actually wasn't bad. Um, no, I still think that the uh, musical radio play is the best version, personally. The musical radio. <laughs> the chances of anything coming from us. Yeah. What a million to one, she yes. said. Or something like that. Yes. All right. Sounds like possibly the worst time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, okay. Oh, so, what so I learned good. about the War of the Worlds is it's actually part of a, a large literature at the time that's not science y. Um, that's invasion literature, especially in Britain. When was it in the published? late 19th century. It was published in 1897 in magazine, 1898 in book. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, like the, in the late 19th century, in Britain had a whole bunch of uh, invasion literature that was really scared of being invaded by stuff. Um, and so his book is a part of that. But the thing is, is that it's also like a fairly, it's argued sometimes that it's an anti-imperial book. I could see that. Because the Martians are invading Imperial Britain in its height and subjugating it immediately and destroying it. And H.G. Wells actually said himself that it was, he was basing it off um, the invasion of Tasmania. Now, he does this in a way that is really, really gross. Um, there's a lot of language about inferiority and stuff, which is very ugly. Dear, dear. But the point is, is that the Martians are meant to be in, invading and, and sort of showing what imperialism like to the... To the imperial people, right? Going like this is what it feels like to be to be colonized. Totally, yeah. To give you empathy towards the right. people you've colonized. So the imperial power becomes a victim, and I think that's interesting because that pervades a whole bunch of other stuff. I was going to say that even I, now, yeah, I that feel theme. like that is a yeah, that's a very very common sort of archetype. Chief inspiration for Brexit, I imagine. Um, but that's, I mean, yeah, that's uh, that's a really interesting. If I. I, I, sh I thought about doing this, but I do think you can see from like the beginning of sci-fi to now, this sort of like rise and fall of different uh, prevalence, like prevalent structures. Like you have these kind of evasion literature, but I feel like the 2000s and 2010s was like rife with dystopian novels. Oh yeah. There was yeah, dystopian so central. And now we're sort of in a, a period of time where the, the science fiction that's being made now is about human connection, hope, overcoming adversity through, through like trusting and supporting others. It's become very hopeful. Can I can I make that like uh, reflect in music as mm. well? Uh, because I feel like a lot of the music from the early two thousands, for example, that I came of age in, um, was that kind of like nameless angst. 
in a period of time that was really quite, things were flourishing and, you know, life was good for the most part. Um, and all of a sudden there was this music that was just all, you know, your Lincoln Parks at all and your Limp Biscuits and stuff where you're like fucking, you know, ah, fuck this, fuck you, you know, we're different, you know. Generation X. X. <laughs> Generation Strange. Cringe. Uh, song rules. I don't give a fuck. It's, it's so good. But like, <laughs> if only we could fly. Like if we, you know, and so all of this is happening. Um, the out of, you know, a relatively prosperous kind of time. Whereas now there is a tendency towards more uplifting music or an exploratory kind of like emotional connection music or things that give you comfort and things like that because time is a fucking tough. Stuff is not so, I mean, I, <coughs> Excuse me. So I totally understand why maybe in the early 2000s you've got your matrixes, your matrices, and you've got, you've <laughs> and got, you got all got of your, these. And you've got your Hunger Games and you've See, got- See, but that's a little bit later then Not even. that much later. No, it's 2008. Really? Yeah. Well, wow. late 2000s. Yeah, so like out. time gets a bit fucky yeah, for me around there. <laughs> but yeah. So like Vernon Wells, right? Like that's that's a point where sci-fi is having a dichotomy start to happen. Yes. Um, because Jules Verne's all focused on details yep. and doesn't want to be didactic at all. And it wants it to be an adventure. And then H.G. Wells is like, if this isn't meant to be fun, this is meant to be harrowing thematic allegory. <laughs> <laughs> but I won't tell you how this machine works. So that, what Sam was very, very, uh, setting up very well as a segue to what I want to talk about. And I've destroyed the segue You're now. You're welcome. Uh, by talking about it, <laughs> it by openly be so acknowledging it. It was going to be so gonna smooth. It was going to be so smooth. No idea. Um, but I can't, it feels weird to come into this without acknowledging that like, that this is, this is, um, what I'm about to talk about is a, is ultimately a spectrum and an arbitrary distinction, but it's coming up in conversations around science fiction nowadays. So there's a tendency now to split science fiction into two modes, hard science fiction and soft science fiction. Yeah, I've heard this. So hard science fiction, and uh, if they are like on a spectrum, there isn't, they're not boxes, they're on a spectrum and it gets really messy as soon as you start actually trying to put put books on this kind of spectrum. It gets yeah. really messy. But the we're going to go into it and we're going to talk about it because it's it's really pervasive. So, it like, so hard science fiction, would that be like, you know, you're basically thrown completely into a, a world where all of the stuff is really specific. Like yes. the first page is totally illegible. Hank, <laughs> well, Hank turned his prolibrator of later onto <laughs> 240 kilbrits and because... <laughs> Which we've never done before, so, but yes. every Sunday his wife used to pass the Klomblots to the, you know, are <laughs> like, cool, I, I hope I understand what this means by the end of the book. So yes and no. The, the key thing that's important about hard sci-fi is this idea about scientific accuracy. Oh, right. Consistency, okay, gotcha, yeah. internal consistency. Mm. And the idea is like the relationship between the science as a driving mechanism for the rest of the narrative. Right. So how much is the technology driving the story forward? Okay. So like if so if if we're talking about I've got some examples actually. Um let me Brave New World is a great example of hard sci-fi in that way because the yeah. technology of the reproductive structures, the way that the society is structured um which is based on these kind of advancements drives the story. It's, it's literally the, the core of it. Is the and also the, the characters really don't matter very much. Like yes. it, they're just sort of a vehicle to. Right. Foundation is hard sci-fi. The like, iconic hard sci-fi. It's sci mathematical. Right. To a point yeah. where it's like you. That's why you said I shouldn't read it when I picked it up. Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of more modern 
authors, people who are really coming out and 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 leaning into this, is Andy Weir. So author Andy of Weir. The Martian. Andy Weir. You may know The Martian from the film The Martian, starring, starring Matt Damon. I was about to say Mark Matt, Watney, but no. <laughs> Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Directed by Ridley Scott. So the beauty. So. Uh, the Martian is obviously a narrative about um, a astronaut who's been left behind on Mars, and he has to, through his tech- scientific knowledge, his mechanical engineering skills, his botany skills, survive. That is the driving th- plot. Okay. In Project Hail Mary, the driving plot is a- is again another person who's on their own yep. trying to solve problems through it's science. Just his vibe. <laughs> but it's physics. It- this is a love letter to physics because this is a love letter to. Um, the central sort of mode of the way the story is being told is through the idea of centrifuge and planetary systems, and it's all yeah. There's so much detail about how the ship how the creates ship its functions. artificial gravity, yeah, and stuff. He explains it, so and that th- sounds shit, but it's really good because partly <laughs> because it's science porn essentially, yeah, right. Because it's, it's just like people like so it's like the Martian is great. The Martian in the movie is is amazing for this because yes. it is like he's solving so many problems, and you're just so excited to see it happen. Yeah, and his scientific uh, capacity is a driving force. Um, in terms of films, 2001 A Space Odyssey, hard sci-fi. Okay. Um, have you seen the film Moon? Yeah, I love the film Moon. Hard sci-fi. Hard. Hard. <laughs> yeah, really true, because it's so focused on I'll the generally whole watch anything with premise. Sam Rockwell in it. Same. As a rule. Dude's a so, rock star. I think that I'll talk about soft sci-fi, and then I want to talk about a movie very briefly that kind of ruins the dichotomy. <laughs> You're right. So, soft sci-fi. Soft. This is soft. one that prioritises human emotion, relationships. It's more about speculative societies. It's about the vibe. But <laughs> the point is, so hard, soft, it's about hard sciences versus soft sciences. It's about natural sciences versus social sciences. Okay, right. So and yes, I do object to that dichotomy. <laughs> As, as do I. <laughs> so, if you want to think want to stress it, that this section is the stuff that I read. <laughs> yeah, so the distinction being like hard sci-fi, things like physics, biology, chemistry drive the story. Yeah. Soft sci-fi, things like uh, politics, anthropology, human relationships, connections, yeah. ideas of community drive stuff the story. Stuff like The Expanse. Yes. Which has all of those things. Stuff, <laughs> yes. Uh, June. Which yeah, has June. all of those things. Farscape. <laughs> Farscape, is, I, I, when you said that, I didn't expect it to come up in this list because we were talking about all this classic literature and suddenly it's just this wacky Australian sci-fi from the <laughs> yeah. 2000s. 2000s yeah. Things hey, like it gets to be on the list. Terminator is a really great example as well. You'd think that that's hard sci-fi, but what's the driving force of the narrative? The relationship between the people. Yeah, and then that's actually the entire point that's of the, the whole those point. first two movies. So, yeah. The power of... The of, best friend that got sent back in China. The reason... Well. So, yeah. this the film that I just want to mention, we have spoken about it before on the podcast, but I think that it's a really... A great example of how things can be both at the same time. The film Arrival. Yes. Mm. I've seen it in both hard and soft sci-fi lists because of a variety of reasons. One mm. being that if you it it basically is like whether or not you count linguistics as hard or soft science, or whether you count the like what is the focus of the narrative, right? Is it the linguistic relativity? Is it the language? Is it yeah. that part that's drawing it? Or is it the time travel, space children, the the children, and also the um the, the sadness. The, the the sort of almost like organic physics that the 
septopods the, have yeah, yeah. is that the driving force because it's like so it's this idea about linguistic relativity and Darmok comes up as a really great example the yeah, first episode Trek, yeah. of the way that like linguistics influencing thought and perception being a, a tool to explore the idea of who are you yeah. and yeah, your I, relationship to society I kind of see how that fits in both because to me I was like but it's so much about the science of language and problem solving and they actually really did think a lot in the movie about how to make the circular language yes in fact they kind of made it. So they did. They constructed a language. <laughs> they actually constructed it. So it is internally coherent. The symbols that they're using, they designed it. Also, so it's not just nonsense each time. It's technology, like the way that she's solving the language problems are technologically driven. Like, And then you've got the guy, the mathematician, physics guy. What's his name? Don't remember. I don't know either of their names. The, yeah. guy, the actor. I don't know. Oh, the fucking case Hawkeye. is Hawkeye. right in front of me. <laughs> He's Hawkeye. All right. So here we are. I know it's Amy Adams. Jeremy Renner. Jem- Jeremy it isn't Renner. Forrest Whitaker. He's great in that movie. He's great in that movie. He, his character movie. also contributes extensively to the to the narrative. It's a very science forward. But so that is basically depending on what what do you prioritize in the narrative. You know what? Another um, TV film sci-fi space that I think is a great challenge to the whole dichotomy. Yeah. Um, is like so if the, if you consider like a what would you call that Cartesian plane like a Cartesian plane. Of, of between like science oriented and social oriented and then moral didactic stories and adventure stories that don't give a fuck. And Star Trek just went, let's do all of it. <laughs> every single every fucking single one. Star Trek one. fits in every single one of those boxes. Although I think it's generally best considered if you had to put one label on it, a soft sci-fi, because even though it's got all of this techno babble, None of it is internally coherent and it's what, all nonsense to further a, a question about our ethics. And what we should and definitely beliefs. do is reverse the polarity of something or other <laughs> in order to further Data's main quest line. Yeah. Um, so that Data can dream. <laughs> so- <laughs> we, we want reverse the polarity to defend ourselves in order that our little robot boy becomes a man. <laughs> another, another really well-known science fiction novel slash t- TV show slash... Movie. Maybe it it's has not a been TV made show. many times. Yeah. Um, I go by many that names. That breaks all of the rules. Good. Is Hitchhiker's oh. Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> hey. Because it's a comedy. Well, and a unique piece of fiction, truly. It's, yeah. you know, so I did, I, I did some research into this. So what is interesting about this book is it deliberately uses comedy and science fiction and plays them off each other constantly. Yeah. It's constantly, but not in, not in like I'm switching. It's like forcing them to fucking work together yeah. in a way that none of them, you don't adhere to any of the um, conventions of either. You're not adhering to any conventions of comedy or any conventions yeah, it's of like, sci-fi to make them kiss. It is like, um, yeah. <laughs> it is like violently avoiding conventions. Like, yes. Although, I mean, I, it feels like it meets some of them, but I think that's just because of Hitchhiker's Guide. it's redefined you know I mean? yeah, it in a way. Changed, that uh, British existentialism that's so pervasive. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, the, it wasn't a TV show. It was a radio play originally, obviously. Was, yeah. Which also makes, it's me, amazing, by makes the way. me think of War of the Worlds a little bit. And the, the yeah. theme song to that radio play. Um, yeah. I like, because it, it, it lives... <laughs> I was listening to it. I thought it was I thought it was bespoke for the thing. It turns out it's the song by the Eagles. <laughs> yeah, oh. it's like what were they um called doing that day? Something about the sorcerer or the sorcerer, not the sorcerer's apprentice, sure. <laughs> no, but so, so, <laughs> something along those lines. Wow. And I will say it was the chief piece of inspo that I gave to Sam Vallon 
uh, when asking him to craft the theme song for our podcast, for this very podcast. Aww. I said, listen to this song and the kind of vibe from that. This was something that I listened to when I was a kid. Blah, so blah, this blah. is really close to home for all of us. It is. So- also, like, just the conception, like, again, to talk about the cynicism of, uh, of Douglas Adams, like the kind of main antagonist being these alien robot things from the planet Cricket. Like, firstly, the Cricket joke is quite funny. But yeah. then on top of that, it's just like there are species that were just like their whole planet was covered in cloud and then somehow the cloud cleared and they saw that there was a universe out there and they went, no, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> uh, that, that won't do. Just and then they so went out and British. Just, it just couldn't be anywhere else in the fucking world. Yeah. And, you know, actually, I love that Douglas Adams, there's, a, there's an era of Doctor Who in the late 70s, in the Tom Baker era, fourth Doctor era, Big Scarf. Um, and it's awesome because it's very, very funny and has that dark existentialism. And then you realize it's because Douglas Adams was the. Did he, <laughs> he wrote the show. episode? Yeah, no, no, he wrote. He was the chief like writer. He was in charge of Doctor Who basically was it during, Wait, during the Tom Baker era. Yeah, through two of years of it in like seventy eight, seventy nine. When he was with, with second Romano, <gasps> with the episode in Paris where they have the yes, guys. Yes, because it, it, oh, it, it makes so much sense. So it is so good. Douglas Adams. You are the only ones who know what you're talking. about. <laughs> um, people, <laughs> the City of Death is a classic. The City of Death. <laughs> it's particularly because it's you can watch the it. It's something of death. It's peak Doctor Who to me because it's funny, like in the sense that haha, this is funny because it's a bit shit, but it's so self-effacing it's and the so jelly beans moment. Yeah, uh, you could have just said berries. no. It's like jelly bean, jelly baby. They put, put, it's like you could have just said no. <laughs> <laughs> also, Tom Baker, like shout out to fucking amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I was reading recently to step aside from sci-fi for a bit. I was reading uh, the Silver Chair to my eldest recently, and uh, when it came to Puddle Glum, the character, because in the BBC version of the thing, it was it was Tom Baker that played, played Puddle Glum, and when it came to creating, because I do all the voices and stuff, of course I do. I'm a fucking dork, but like. <laughs> Um, when it came to Puddle Glum, I just did a Tom Baker impression because there's, it's like, it's like if you're reading Harry Potter, you're going to do, uh, Hagrid as Robbie Coltrane. Yeah. You know, rest in peace. Like, right. it, it's like. Are you going to do you, Dumbledore they, as Michael Gambon? Uh, just yelling as loud as possible. <laughs> no, my Dumbledore is a lot older, but like, it's, it, it, but this is the thing. Like, so it's, it's, you know, this, this guy was so, this character, he was such a, an amazing guy. I mean, both as the Doctor and also Puddle Glum. It's just like, I couldn't picture it as anybody else. Anyway, that's just my little aside about how good Tom Baker is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah His amazing is. voice. So let us return to our chronology and talk about the birth of science fiction as we know it because of the word. So the word, this is etymology break, people. Yeah, we're doing it. In case it. you weren't ready. Hey. Um, so <laughs> the earliest usage of the term. Do it. With a different meaning is in 1851. But it didn't quite mean what we, we we mean now. It means fiction which depicts current science. Okay. So it basically meant sciencey fiction, I guess. It doesn't really, and apparently that was used in W. Wilson's Little Ernest book upon a great old subject. I don't, I don't know. I tried it's to. It's a book I tried he stole from Little Ernest, who lived down the street. I tried to find a readable copy of the book, and I couldn't. Um, anyway, sounds um, like someone's fucking with you, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> um. But it also, like, and also, you know, it has science fiction is a term that's also used to describe something that's wrong. We still use it that way. So, oh, that's science fiction. That's not going to happen. Oh, that actually yeah, predates okay. its use as a literary genre. So, What's in the, the late fuck? 19th century, Does they that said, mean? I'm not unlikely theories or assertions in science would be science fiction. Mm. Really cool. So, it only really becomes science fiction as we know it from about the. That's like fake news. Early 20th century. <laughs> the first person to be known to be called a sci-fi author was H.G. Wells. There you go. In 1898. 
but it's really in common use from a series of magazines. So in the 1920s, magazines were a really big thing. This is kind of hard for me to wrap my head around because we, you know, came of age at the beginning of the internet times. Yeah, right. But like in the 1920s, mag- magazines were rife in terms of the, your content of like, if you're into planes, you need to get your plane magazine. You're going to get a plane magazine, you lunatic. If you're a hobbyist, because you don't have like TikTok. Like, <laughs> constant dizzying access <laughs> to things. waking and sleeping hours. Nightmarish. The plane details, the um, plane parts. Constant dizzying football. So there was there were a series of ads for the magazine Air Wonder Stories in 1929, which used the term science fiction. Okay. Yeah. And then there was also, and this is where we sort of get to an important part of the 20th century story, is Hugo Gernsback. Hugo is in the Hugo Awards. Um, he was in charge of magazines and was promoting a magazine called Amazing Stories. Um, and like initially amazing. he was using the term scientification. 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 It looks yeah. like scientification, but then you look at it again, it's, it's scientification. It's really not a good term. And eventually over time it became science fiction. Science fiction. Scientification. But yeah, so Amazing Stories was really important um, because it's sort of the beginning of the era where um, pulp sci-fi emerges. Up until this point, we're just talking about like those these big authors that we've talked yeah. about. Yes, and their large exploration. Kind of like that episode of Deep Space Nine. <laughs> we haven't done it yet. We haven't done it yet. <laughs> that episode of Deep Space Nine where um, Cisco goes into the the the, the spear. No, what's it called? Uh, scientific. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> the orb. He goes yeah. into the orb and he goes back into the fifties and he works as a sci- he works for a magazine. To oh, do sci-fi. that episode is fucking cool. and it's fucking sick. Yeah, and yeah. the um, whole cast is there outside of their prosthetics. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Stuff. And yeah, yeah. As sci-fi like, as writers, sci-fi yeah. authors for a magazine, though. Each one of them is based off famous sci-fi writers too. Are you serious? Oh, really? Oh, that show is so good, guys. Oh. Have we talked about how good Deep Space Nine is? I know we've never brought it up once. <laughs> so another, thing, it. another thing about the magazines is that, and again, I didn't think of this because we didn't have anything like this. We have been in the digital era, but they were a networking tool. I think of magazines as the most one-way thing ever, but it's not. So letters to the editor and like allowed a network to develop and like to have people to contact other subscribers and stuff. So it was the beginning of a sci-fi community or fandom, as we might call it. So it's the early without it's like naturally toxic codification. (laughs) Yeah, so like that was a huge thing. So pulp sci-fi and like it, like the popularization of just sci-fi themes, even if it was just like I think I meant to say connotations, but I had a stroke halfway through (laughs) saying we just accepted it. Nineteen twenties, big shout out to the film, and it's where sci-fi film starts to become a thing because one of the earliest is the film Metropolis. Yeah, okay. I would argue that one of the earliest is nineteen o two's. The film that we spoke about in the yeah. cinema episode. Yeah. With, the with the bullet the, hitting the moon. Yeah. Trip to the moon. Trip to the moon. Trip to the moon. Trip to the moon. Yeah. To the but moon. as you the were. Tongue, the moon. The lips. But maybe the first consciously science fiction. The thing about Metropolis is, is that it's a silent film. Film yes. barely exists. It's 1927. Like we've discussed this in the cinema episode, the movies episode, there are like, cinema barely exists. You can barely watch the, the idea of a We're just theater. shy of 100 years ago. Yeah. Um, and this is like a full length movie by our standards. Um, with is that Wait, hang on, f- really? Like 1927, they're making a feature length like- sci-fi movie. Yes. Get the fuck out of here. This was a German made movie. And it's like set in this like futuristic city. There's like all these miniatures used for like some of the f- first times miniatures are used in film. 
they made miniatures and, and like had little planes and stuff flying they through X-wings. the streets. <laughs> yeah. There was this amazing, in terms of special effects, there's this amazing thing where they have a um, this shot, incredible shot of like a big, um, so it's basically a map painting like and miniature of a building, but he had to animate it essentially by hand, frame by frame to get the these lights to move. They oh, had those like wow. lights to move across the city. Yeah. There's also like, so the thing about Metropolis is that it was hugely influential on pulp sci-fi visual look. If you look at any part of it, including the font of the poster. Mm. Legit. And the fembot, it's just like the, that's the most mm-hmm. iconic bit is when there's this like golden feminine robot with these like rings that go up and down. This is a silent movie, by the way. The ring is going up and down and it turns her into a woman or something. Hectic. It's absolutely hectic. And they go 1927. Into, yeah, and they struggle with that because they were, this is, um. oh, and the film is like, communist as hell (laughs) it's it's the whole thing is about class struggle and warfare and the german authorities even before the nazis were in power weren't particularly fond of this so they had it cut down i was gonna say they were like 10 years away from nazis they were like four years away from nazis oh wait Um, 1933 yes so um five years six years whatever whatever between friends short time (laughs) and then in during the nazi era they actually made them cut down more and for ages right up until the 1980s the only copy of the film that survived that we had was the nazi cut where they cut out all the commie bits oh come on (laughs) that fucking sucks that would be such a fun segue to director's cuts but we might leave that director's cut just referred to as the nazi cut from this point of the nazi cut right learning about the special effects of this movie was just messed there's this thing called the the, the Schuften process, which was the guy who was in charge of it at the time, so he invented it in this movie. Yeah. And this is where like you need to get people walking on the miniature of a city. The yeah. Right. So they have the people walking over there in the studio, and then they have the miniature behind them. They use a mirror at a 45 degree angle from the camera to so you're filming the reflection of the miniature, and then the bit where the people are walking, you just scratch out from the mirror. <laughs> what the? Fuck? And they walk through it. Apparently it was used in Lord of the Rings at some point. I don't know when. That's absolutely insane. <laughs> the practical effects, honestly, like. Yeah. But, but I mean, also like, it seems like such a roundabout way of getting something to work. But again, maybe it's just, it's the way to make it look as the Real. most realistic. Yeah. That's incredible. That's pretty cool. What a mad dog. Yeah. So like by, by the 1940s, we're entering what we would call, it's grown to the point where it's often called the golden age. I hate it when people call such shit the golden age. Yeah. Cause it's. Again, Unnecessary the decline. They don't make it like they used yeah. to. I mean, they do. It was a good time. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. But it's completely ignoring some of the most impactful science fiction authors that happened in the 60s and 70s by calling the 40s and 50s the golden age. It's like, it's just... Yeah, so... Boom. Fart noise to that. But this style of like um, science-driven hard sci-fi came here. So this is Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke. Mm. Um through magazines. And apparently this is a lot to do with this one magazine editor. Um, the magazine was astounding science fiction in the 1940s and 50s. And John Campbell Jr. had this like, no, it has to have attention to science. So he was like making sure that the science fiction was this way. And so it created the norm of, of what that looked like. Yeah. Um, and you know, Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke were writing for that. So that's, and uh, many, many other writers, of course. So... Yeah, it's like another thing about magazines is that the reason why they're important is because no one was publishing sci-fi at this point. Like we've talked about H.G. Wells and Jules Verne, but that's a massive exception. Other than them, almost no one, including these guys, were getting published in a hardcover 
By like publishing houses. They by would. mainstream publishers. They just wouldn't touch them. Yeah. So it was only weird like bespoke publishers and magazines because the magazines would print bits of them in the magazine and then you would like mail order the book and they would print small runs of like Asimov and stuff. So they'd like print like the first chapter of a book in there yeah. and then you'd be like, I fucking love this story. I've got to buy this book. And then you'd go to the magazine and be like, I want to buy this book. Right, okay. And then they yeah. would ship it to you. That's how- Because it was so rare and they would have just to so DIY, rare. yeah. So the big turnaround again, it's for that, that. that classic thing of like, if you're doing something interesting, you essentially have to do it until you're too big to ignore and then, and then yeah. you know what I mean? Basically. So the too big to ignore was June. So uh-huh. June is the turnaround in 1965. Let's pull out June. copy of June big. from the pile. Yeah. She is big. The high entropy pile of sand that is June. <laughs> so nice. June was published in a mainstream publishing house and then was a massive commercial success. So can that I, changed everything. Can I just make an aside about the fact that it's absolutely insane that they were going, not Arthur C. Clarke, not Asimov, but June by a book written by an ecologist. A desert was like, ecologist. A desert, yeah. Was like, that's the one I'm going to take a chance on. This highbrow political, social yeah. science fiction with a massive world. That's the one I'm going to take the bet on. But like, yes, it's all of those things. But it's also like, as you said, this is iconic soft sci-fi. Like this, yes. the focus is so much on the on the personal relationships. The politics. And the, the politics and the, uh, the kind of metaphors and allegories and stuff happening from the book. Yeah, like the planet itself being a character in the story. And the religions within them. And yeah. yeah. Oh, so iconic. Just the, like, let's just say fear is the mind killer. Just say those words. Just it's say fucking, that. It's insanely yeah. um, good. Yeah, so like that's why we call this era like the new wave period, 60s and 70s, because this is the point where um, sci-fi was becoming a lot more mainstream because it was opening up to a wider range of themes and also it was a fuckload more political. Um, right, And this yeah, was helped okay. by the fact that the writers weren't all white men anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Well, the, girls. Yeah. Yeah, so, the girls. Um, the girls. The girls. Um, so Anne McCaffrey was the first woman to win a Hugo Award with We Are Search. Which is the big first chapter of Dragon. The first half of Dragon Flight. Dragon Flight. Was later published as a novel with Dragon Flight. Um, and the first to win a Nebula, which is Dragon Rider, which was, again, the second half of the I book. Love that that it's, it's sci-fi, like, I love that it's sci-fi with dragons. I love that. That's, that's yeah, fun. Yeah, I mean, it's oh. definitely cusp um, definition. That is yeah. what I would Fantas-esque. call it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fantasy esque Yeah. sci-fi. It's a blended... Yeah. It's um, a blended genre in a way that's really only. It's very difficult to do that kind of blend, and she does it so artfully. The ship is the ship who sang is Ugh. not a cusp. It is hot. It is sci-fi as it, as you get, um, and is incredible. It's a beautiful story. Um, it's, but that one was several short stories that she eventually published as one book. Yes. Yeah. Which is yeah. again, it was very common back then. Julian May. Julian May. Julian May. Julian Another May. female sci-fi writer. Yes. Yeah. That one one's interesting because the, what's the series called? Like the uh, Golden the Talk a, the series? The Era of yeah, the yeah. Scene. Saga of the Exiles. Saga of the Exiles. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was That's like published in the so 80s, yeah. but she was writing stuff in like the 60s. So like, Hers is fucking chaotic too. I mean, yeah. I guess it does, it is like uh, probably by definition soft sci-fi yes. because it's again- politics and context yeah. and, you know, then in a sci-fi context. But her universe is so fleshed out that it's actually scary. Yeah, I it's, think it's hard for me to actually keep all of the shit in my it's head. It's arguably too when fleshed out it. in the book. Yeah, I would say <laughs> probably. It's just like a little too just, much detail. Just, just a negative just, degree. Can we, yeah, like, zoom out just a little bit. Yeah. No, zoom in. Like, we've got too many characters. <laughs> this is <laughs> a big character universe. Yeah, um, half of them died in the last book and yet they're still... There's well. loads. But yeah, so like there's another example. <laughs> Anne McCaffrey's uh, The Ship is saying though, that's the one I'm, I remember a bit more hazily than you, Sam, because I think you've read it more recently. Mm. 
it's the where the there's a ship that's powered by the mind of a person whose body is sort of basically it's a, a, a basically disabled children yeah who don't have function of their bodies mm-hmm. become the mind of a ship and that's something that they consent to i believe from what i can remember it's yeah. something they choose to do, I do and that, they yes. they become basically the ship's ascension ships uh-huh. um sort of like kind of like like, not, like moya like in moya, uh, like from Farscape and, in yeah, that except, way. except like you're talking to except you can ship. talk to the ship and then right. but the ship like they're not like a floating head they're not like a brain like they're still got their bodies but mm-hmm. they're like Become the ship. Become the ship. I it's guess. it's really conceptually cool, and the story is actually about yeah. love. Yeah, in and then a there's way an amazing emotional intimacy, and it's about like this idea of like getting to know somebody who you never see, falling in love with somebody because of their mind and because of who they are. Can I also say, as like a <sighs> like a a, a a title lover, a yeah. lover of titles yes. and a lover of names of things. Uh, the Ship Who Sang is top tier. Just that amazing. is yeah. such a fucking good title. It's such a good- because So is The White Dragon. <laughs> All of it is good. Yeah, but I mean, it's a, it's beautiful. It's, it's, I can't remember how it ends, but it, it is a beautiful story. It's about love yeah. and it's, it's that's, such an interesting amazing. way to approach that story. And Emma Caffrey does that a lot. She has a lot of, common like conventions in her writing she's a slut for fucking psychokinetic stuff (laughs) (laughs) yeah but that's that whole era of like those mid to mid late century writers were just obsessed with telepathy like like, the dragon books no one writes about telepathy that's all about telepathy the talent series predominantly about telepathy or psychokinetics um incredible love that with the talent books are the best. Give me psychokinetics. Give me Gambit. <laughs> <laughs> but this is this is the era where sci-fi just gets really rich and like it's and this is the point where we're like, oh, is this oh, this isn't genre fiction. No. Because it's a framework within which you can do almost anything. Yeah. Um, I would I would say also the reason why it's the new wave is you you have this sort of feminist backlash in this sort of sci-fi, I would say as well. Yeah. There's, there's female writers talking from a fem- with a female voice about like a lot of political shit mm. um, and and using allegory to discuss ideas of agency and autonomy yeah. and ideas of control and regulation. You know, a really interesting one of those is Ursula Le Guin. Yes. Um, with The Left Hand of Darkness in 1969. Can I just say, as a lover of titles. <laughs> <laughs> fucking <crush>. Amazing. <laughs> so it won the Hugo, Hugo and Nebula for best novel in 1970. Deservedly yeah. so. So it's huge. The thing is, I was I've only just started reading it and I've gone, how I'm surprised that she wasn't burnt at the stake for this. Um because There was no controversy as well. I looked into it. There was nothing. There was okay, no so reaction. This book, right, is set on a world in which there's a group of humans who have evolved differently. And so they have like no gender. And in fact, they don't really have a biological sex. They have a sort of a thing called chemo, which sort of every few months will bring out uh, and they'll pair with another person. Right. But then like if you wrote this now, you might go, oh, they don't have gender, so they have they pronouns or something like that. Yeah. But obviously yeah. she didn't do that. So she, everybody has he pronouns. Now, so these multiple people who have he pronouns are romantic and speak like physically intimate with each other. Yeah. Uh, and this is a book in, written in 1969. Okay. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Christ <laughs> anyway, alive. It's great. Is what I'm trying yeah, to say. Because, I mean, and it's a commentary on on gender and sexuality yeah. in a way that like we are still, we see this in, in modern literature, but is, is bold. 
Yeah, but it's, it's, it's really interesting because, again, that's just a cool exploration of the thing. Whereas, like, even when Star Trek did that, like, in Next Gen, they did, yeah. like, they visited a, a planet where it's, like, it, it's genderless and, mm. and all of this sort of stuff. And then it gets kind of a little bit fucky because Riker then fucks one. Like, it's like, you can't, <laughs> you know, Wait, it's just do they like, actually have sex? Well, no, I'm screaming. I mean, other. I was about to say, the implication is that it's just like, you know, we're exploring this cool concept. Yeah, but it, Riker's going to. Sure, it's gonna. I fuck mean, him. Riker's <laughs> gonna get. Yeah, get, so it's it's it. It, it, that that kind of gets a little bit silly there, but I, I conceptually I like the idea. I think actually they the allegory from that episode is it's more about gay rights. I think. Yeah, well, yeah, I think because we, of the timing of next yeah. gen and what was kind of on the cusp. Except of um, Jonathan Frakes is the actor who plays Riker. Um, he wanted the actor to who played the genderless person who wanted to be a woman. Yeah. Um wanted them that actor to be male. Yeah, he right. was actually fighting for it to be even more but the kind suits. of provocative, I guess, yeah, in the time okay, period. Right. The suits. Yeah. The suits. And the suits got in the way of a lot of shit. Like the first interracial kiss Kel was fucking supreme. Yeah. Was um between Uhura, Uhura and, and uh, Kirk. Kirk yeah. And they wanted it to look less like they were both having a good time with it. So they made them do lots of takes, but they refused. The actors were just we're gonna do this as if they then as if it's not as rapey as it actually is being depicted. Yeah, right. Um, and the same so with like um, <laughs> the first lesbian kiss on screen. Yes, which was also Deep in Space Star Nine. Trek. Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine was Deep the Space first Nine lesbian was, kiss. Well, on the first well, the thing is non-titillation, like love. There were tons of ooh sitcom bullshit, but there wasn't any. Yeah, I looked this up. These were. This was it like was, um ex. This is the first hers. like romantic, actual, real kiss between women on screen. I'm so here for the noise you just made. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of, uh, yeah, okay. What's the sign because, they hold up because for Because oh, essentially it's Dax, a previous, her, the, was it Curzon? Curzon's yeah. wife? Yeah. So her past, her life past had life's a wife comes onto the station and obviously they still have the feelings for each other because Dax is still Dax. Yeah. And they do a thing that they sh- like is against trill culture, but it's the first- Not because pa- they're women, but because it's but a past because life. because it's a past yeah. life. It actually doesn't- No one in the show the, cares that I mean, they're women. The, That's the, an important the point. The implication actually. is yeah, Dax true. is pan, basically, because like yeah. it's whatever, whatever. Because Dax is a symbiote that lives inside a body of a, a living body creature. body of whatever <laughs> different <laughs> Dax is a worm For person. listeners out there, okay? This is, <laughs> listen, it makes sense, okay? It makes sense. But, it's going to sound weird when we're saying it, but it makes perfect sense that Dax is like a living worm that lives inside of a person that has had previous bodies that it's been a part of and then that's actually formed relationships and have lives but when, when, that, when their body dies and they have to go into another body and all of a sudden they're in a new life, they're not allowed to actually kind of interact with the people from their previous life. And it makes sense! But you did. It makes sense! <laughs> and so it's, it's a, so it's the first like affection and they were fully, fully, like they literally, all the actors from the episode, everyone who was involved with the production of that episode were was like day of release in the studio waiting for phone calls. And they got Manning fucking the phone phones. calls. Mad phone calls. But they also got an equal number of thank, thank you. Thank you for doing it. Who the fuck? Can I just... I mean, maybe it's because of the era in which I live, but like... This is like 96. What fuckhead isn't listening to Rage Against the Machine's Evil Empire in that year? (laughs) Surely you are too busy to pick up the phone because you've just hit you with a boomerang and it's about to fucking go off in your living room. Um, But no, like who, who picks up the phone at the end of that episode? And who doesn't just like storm over to also, the wife and go like, not on my watch, Cindy? But also like, who's watching Star Trek 
and having a problem with that. Lots of people. See, the thing is, is Star Trek is a progressive show that's watched, especially back then, because right now it's watched by Star Trek fans, but back then it was watched on television. On the television. So it was watched by a ton of people who were not progressive in their yeah. ideology. Yeah. But yeah, Terry Farrell... They wanted to watch Boom happen. Yeah, and Terry Farrell was <laughs> like... Does happen. ...very prepared for the for backlash. backlash, right. And was like, it's important that we do this. Like, it's important that this happens. But yeah. I, and I'm willing I, I, to be I here. I am flabbergasted. It's insane. That this but they is were, the case. They were so thrilled because it was 50-50 and they just did not expect that at they all. Were, they expected to be eviscerated. That is a home run, <laughs> sadly. Yeah, <laughs> they fucking nailed it. Again, I, I, I come back to it. Who picks up the phone? Yeah. Be mad. Yeah. By all means, be mad. Yeah. It's like, actually, you know what the modern equivalent is? People commenting on the Instagram pages of actors in the film they don't like. Yeah. yeah. For, uh, for the characters' yeah. actions in the film <laughs> that, they don't like. That's just insanity. Yeah. It that's, is, it's like, that, that's <laughs> the modern version of that, but it's just like, cool, I watched this episode and I'm steaming. I'm fucking walking around. These two women kissed lovingly on TV and now I'm feeling some really strong feelings that can't possibly be like what I think they are. So also- I'm going to get really <laughs> mad and I'm going to fucking dial some numbers and I'm going to yell at someone from the telly. To this day, Terry Farrell, who's the actress who played Dax. Dax. Yes. Yeah. Um, still gets people thanking her and saying how important that was in their life. Wow. Growing up, seeing that. Because she goes to it's all just, the cons. It's amazing. Because she's married to um, Leonard Nimoy's son. Oh, wow. What a Star Trek family. Holy shit. And she got, you get to see her. She Like, I've seen photos of her, like, as the age that she is now in the little Star Trek uniform. And I'm like, thank you very much. She's still fine. Uh, oh, she's still fine. She's still fine as hell. Let's go. Um, Speaking of queer as fuck sci-fi. Yes. Um, <laughs> thank you. That's a good transition. My favorite science fiction author is a current one, which is weird. I'm now caught up. Yeah. On this author. We have read everything. You, there's no more. There's no more. At there's, well, there's, there's no more Asimov either, but there's just so much of it that it's just, I'm never going to do would that. would you say, the golden age of <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna call it the golden age. <laughs> this is the platinum. Do you want to tell them <laughs> who it is? Be- or are you just oh, yeah, Becky them? Chambers. So Becky <laughs> no, Chambers. No, she will go nameless. <laughs> Becky Chambers is great. Um, that's my story. Thanks, um, thanks man. <laughs> now, if you had, you talk about hard and soft sci-fi. If I had to pick the thing that is like hardcore soft sci-fi, that's that was weird. The the hardest, 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 that softest. You were going to have the hardest melted marshmallow of your fucking life. It's going to be I so pillowy. The quintessential. Quintessential. Ethereal soft Eighth, sci-fi. Typical? No. Quintessential. Ethereal and quintessential don't mean the same Fairy thing. Fairy floss, the same cotton candy ass. <laughs> it's yeah. soft sci-fi. Okay. The actual components or politics of these books does not really matter very much. And in it's fact, kind of like no plot vibes only. There are some plots. There's one particular book called The Galaxy and the Ground Within. Oh, just as a lover of titles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's run through the titles, actually. Let's run through it. Okay, so, so the first book is called Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. Okay. The good. second book is That's called... That's an A minus. A Closed and Common, common orbit. orbit. A. Then it's Record of a Spaceborn Few. A plus. <laughs> and then it's uh, The Galaxy and the Ground... Beneath, within, within. Like bonus and credit. then a novella to be taught if fortunate. To be taught a fortunate. To be taught if fortunate. If fortunate, a. And then we have the Monk and Robot this is series. The best one. A Psalm for the Wild Built. Uh, <laughs> and the second, the second book, A Prayer for the Crown Shy. Okay, so She's all so of good these. At titles. <laughs> the thing is that all of them, the, those last ones, have the same drum fill. Yes. Which is awesome. Yeah. Is that what you're picturing? Yeah, Probably man. <laughs> so. 
That's punctuation. That's an ellipsis. <laughs> Becky Chambers <laughs> is. <laughs> Why are you guys are doing the drop bell? I'm just going to talk to the audience. It's just you and me, guys. Um, so they're having their thing. But Becky Chambers is like kind of the. I would say she's like the. I would say she's the face of um, a new genre of science fiction, in in a sense, which is sort of. I mean, and she kind of straddles too, uh, which one is called Hope Punk. Hope Punk. Hope Punk, and then there's a version of that called Solar Punk. So Hope Punk is an idea where the central protagonist and the central storyline is about fighting for positive change. It's centred on radical kindness and it's about a communal response to challenges. It's sort of the rejection of what was known as grimdark. Okay. Which is... You know what's kind of cool about this is that these terms just came, is literally originally came from a Tumblr post that someone really? said, a Tumblr post that just read, you know what, I think if the opposite of grimdark would be, it was in a conversation about not liking grimdark stuff and just being like the opposite of grimdark would be hope punk and describe some examples of what they called it that. And now it's literally a term. It's now a term. <laughs> I, think, I love it because it's kind of a joke because of course you have the existing things like steampunk, steampunk, steam punk, yeah. that yeah. kind of thing. So the idea of hope punk is almost like a, a joke. It's like in music, it's, you know, like metalcore, yeah. you know, like hardcore. But it's know, also like, it's, it's not just... Core, you know. <laughs> it's not just hopeful. It's also, there's a sort of, the punk element is, I think is important. It's the, yeah. There's a slapdash uh, underdog thing that has to be there's there. There's an idea well. yeah. of like optimistic rebellion. Yeah, it's like, it's like Tank Girl, but with friendship. Yeah, Tank yeah. Girl, but wholesome. So, like, yeah. so, <laughs> so an example of Grimdark, I think a lot of ones that come up is like a world that is particularly dystopian, amoral and violent. And A Song of Ice and Fire, which is a fantasy novel, is sort of raised as like a quintessential grimdark People narrative. really like this stuff and yeah. I don't. And I this just game, can't stand I think, it. would be another example of a science fiction grimdark where it's like the world sucks, the people are bad, the ending... Which one would... You, I missed it. Ender's Game. Ender's oh, Game, yeah, Ender's okay, game. right, yeah, yeah. So that would well, be... Well, that was a, written by a rampant homophobe, if I recall. Yeah, is that right? Wilson yeah. Scott Card. Fuck that guy. Why? It's a massive. The book's probably really good. I haven't read it. Yeah, well, I have <laughs> read it, but I, don't, I didn't read any sort of homophobic undertones. But it's yeah, no, there, there aren't any really. He's just a prick. <laughs> just, just, just like <laughs> he keeps that shit under his hat. He yeah, he's like, fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> so he writes his grim fucking worlds. Yeah, but okay. So grim dark for me, like again, I think the example of, of like your your Game of Thrones style mm. stuff is. is I'm, I'm with Sam on this 100. percent I think it's just because. For me, not just in the world that we live in, but just me in general, like I am a soft person, which doesn't just mean that I'm like sensitive to moods and things. It means that I'm highly affected by fiction and by reality and stories and stuff that I hear. I end up living those and they live in me and mm. they don't go away. Mm -hmm. And it's why like some of the stories that I write in, you know, concept albums and whatever else have come from character and shit that are, I that aren't reflective of me at all or my experience but because these stories are like in me as a vessel for that shit so like I don't enjoy the experience of reading or experiencing something which is just like bad things happening to good people mm. other people might take that and go like mm. wow that story is really interesting and it's I've walked away from that with a, having observed yeah. that I have to fucking protect myself yeah. from shit like that you know I'm not about to go read fucking Blood Meridian you know what I mean I'm not going to put myself through that kind this of shit. You know, Cormac McCarthy can just fuck off. Yeah, this is why I've never watched the film Alien. I don't need that. Oh, but it's so good though. I know. <laughs> <laughs> like, <okay. laughs> I just, 
at length. Just going, yeah, man. You've got to look after yourself. I've got to take yourself. Oh, baby, got to see fucking the <laughs> Dark Knight. No, if you Sam, haven't seen the Dark Knight, baby. Sam has seen a bit of Alien, but that's just because we went to a pub once in Green Slopes in Brisbane and then- They were uh, playing Alien at the pub. No we just looked sound. up and it was the ending bit where it's still in the shuttle with her, like <laughs> crawling out. And I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. And it was so stressful to watch even with no sound. <laughs> But no, I can't see, like, I really struggle with... In the with, pub, no one can hear you. Alien. <laughs> <laughs> I really struggle with really dark fiction and horror stuff for a lot of the same reason, because it's just like, good, that's with my that's brain with images cool. forever. forever. Thing, we should do a whole episode on horror, though, but... Yeah. <laughs> but I Hell would yeah. say, like, Blade Runner is an example of, like, it's grim. Oh, it it's, is very it's grim. It's very grim. I don't know if you would count this as grim dark. What's iconic cyberpunk? Yes. Yes. So, like, all of this grim dark, hope cyberpunk punk, is these are dark. all under categories of cyberpunk In the grim dark kind of thing, would that just be, like, again, the, the violence and the bad things that happen to the yes. chief characters and stuff like that? And, like, in this, it kind of doesn't. In Blade Runner, I mean, because mm. he's like he's pursuing the Nexus Sixes. He is actually successful in his quest, and there's like the the raised kind of big question mark as to, mm. as to his kind of like whether he's yeah. a replicant or not. Which I, I think in the the Final Nazi cut. cut, he has like <laughs> he has yeah, like the theatrical a, version. They just drive through what looks like Canada, going like, "Well, I hope it lasts a while." You know, I'm like, "What the fuck is this?" Yeah. And then the director's cut. It's like he's a replicant. He's a replicant. <laughs> like, that is a massive could difference. You imagine, by the way, could you imagine going to see 2049? Having not seen Never the director's, seen the director's and cut, then and then it's like, oh yeah, he's a replicant. And he's obviously. a replicant, and everyone's like, what the fuck is happening? So, excuse me, can somebody please uh, fact check whether Rutger Hauer improvised some of that tears and rain speech? Because uh, I, I've been reliably informed. No, 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 that he did. He did, and that means that he has like the kind of dick that you would float <laughs> float into space with. Like, that's <laughs> what a callback. It was the tears and rain. But- he improvised. Yeah. So he, the script was all the other awesome stuff. That's like the I've seen things you wouldn't believe. You wouldn't believe stuff around the rings of satin, like Shit, cool stuff yeah, like that. Man, it was badass. And it's like, and then he was in the range and and says like they're gone, these. they're gone now. And it's like tears and rain. Lost, he like, improvised. Tears and rain. And apparently, and like people on the set were like like crying because it was just like it was like the most perfect thing. And also because his delivery was fucking top notch. Yeah. Just absolute so, peak of his powers. <laughs> I just I just looked into it actually. So. Obviously, um, uh, David Peoples wrote the script, wrote the monologue, and then Hauer cut lines and then added all these moments will be lost in time like tears and rain. Which is the best. That is the fucking home run. That's like the point of the story. Yeah, that's the mic drop of the whole It's the whole bit of it. The the whole movie is this metaphor of existential meaninglessness. You can can find it. In a post-industrial world. Fuck! <laughs> I know I just derailed this a little bit, but Jesus, fuck! Yeah, that's, that's cool. why. Like a lot of people say, "Oh, this movie's so violent," and they were really critical of it. Yeah. But it's like that is the point because <laughs> their lives are worthless. They know it, and they don't like that. That's yes. the whole point. Yes, so of the why, story. Why? Why would you do the Thimbaras film? It's got this. Is it? Yes. Yes, right. it is. Let me tell you yeah. about it. And this is, I suppose, amazing. Also, like just a, an aside is like sometimes the difficulty with being a sci-fi fan and people who aren't sci-fi people watching it and not understanding that sometimes you just have to think about it. Yeah. I mean, you just have, you have to accept it and go- This is a metaphor. This is a metaphor. It actually <laughs> you, is an You have to simultaneously think and completely, and completely not think not about think. it. Yeah. You have to allow it to wash over you and understand that there's meaning deeper than what is being shown to you. Yeah, like the whole point of sci-fi is like we're meant to be exploring something, like exploring an idea through the story, like telling a story through an idea, either one, that's sci-fi. 
And a brilliant example of that is the Monk and Robot series by Becky Chambers. A psalm for the wild built. And a crown for the prayer shot. I know, a prayer, prayer for the for crown shot. Crown, crown for the crown prayer This shot. is a book that she wrote. <laughs> this is a duo book that she wrote. She was commissioned to write it. Um, and it is an example of uh, solar punk, which is just a kind of, kind of um, uh, hope punk, which is particularly focused on a future in which humanity succeeded in solving contemporary challenges with an emphasis on sustainability and climate Renewable change energy, and pollution. Yeah, okay, like that. gotcha. Yeah. Right? That would have been my assumption just based on the name. It's and one so of those stories where the whole premise is like the world is perfect, the main protagonist is sad. <laughs> yeah, and it's, a, and it's sort <laughs> Generation of... Generation X, Generation Strange. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's in a way that's like accepting accepting the feeling of being lost and not having a purpose and maybe that being what's appropriate. And because, like, essentially it's a a, a sibling Dex who is um, like a, what would you say, like a priest of a religion? Yeah, they're like a monk of a religion of small comforts. It's Alalay, the god of small comforts, as it's simple a, as a The world construction yeah, is brilliant. Sick. I don't, get, and, don't give um, a fuck. That's amazing. They go into the wild <laughs> because they're trying to escape something and they don't know what that something is. Okay. They're just trying to escape and they come across a robot because essentially in this world, the robots re- like basically reached a level, like industrialization happened, robots happened, and then they reached a level of sentience where they then essentially had, there was this whole conflict and then the robots left to live in the wilds and they don't interact with the humans anymore. So it's called the awakening. Like they just turned on for some reason and they were sentient and they don't know why. Sick. (laughs) (laughs) Premise. Button push. Yeah. And so this is a world that now doesn't rely on technology in the same way because they realise that, the, day, the risks and they, they, the idea of that sentience means that they've sort of almost pulled away from that. And then there's a person, a, a robot, not a person, very, makes it very clear in the book <laughs> that they are not a person um, that is coming from the robots to basically touch base with humanity. Hey, guys, and they find each other and it's, this, oh, it's a beautiful little duo. It's gorgeous. Especially if, like me, your internal voice for Moscap the robot um, is Taikai Watani. <laughs> Taika Watini. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah but specifically the voice of the rock man that yeah. he voices. Yeah, in, uh, in, in the Avengers. Infinity Wars, yeah. yeah. In I've that. come to ask what humans need. <laughs> <laughs> super friendly fucking guy. And it's beautiful because, like, it ends in a way, and this is the thing that I like about the way Are you that- just going to spoil No, no, no. I'm in the vibe, the vibes. The vibe ending. The endings, no plot in these the books. endings of, of <laughs> modern sci-fi have this openness to them. This like we're just closing the door, but the world is going to continue on. Mm. Okay. Um. That no one's made a decision. And Your window into this world is now shut. Thank is now shut, much, yeah. and like, but in a way that's like, okay, I actually feel really kind of calm about this. Um. And nice. Andy Weir does the same thing where he like kind of ends it on this like someone has to make a decision. You don't get to know what that decision is but you know that they have a decision to make and they're sitting in that. Yeah. And then you get to leave them and they get to live their lives. Wow, I despise that. That's um, why sci-fi has, <laughs> sci-fi has become this thing where it's like, it is more like, as I said at the start, like literary realism than it is mm-hmm. fantasy and crazy fantastical monsters and mm. stuff. It's, it really is like meant to, you're meant to relate to it in some way, even if it's distant and horrifying. <laughs> Or if it's close and cozy, you're meant to kind of find yourself in it. I was going to bring up the movie The Fifth Element, but I think what we're going to do yep. is do an entire mini <laughs> 
dedicated to the film The Fifth Element. Uh, because again, if we start talking about The Fifth Element now, we're going to be we're here gonna forever. Be, we're going to fucking talk about forever. So we'll do a mini-sode on The Fifth Element. If you guys want access to the mini-sodes, don't forget to hit up patreon.com slash TMIE podcast and join our patrons there, the patrons of everything. And we'll get that to you as soon as we can. Yeah, and we're uh, probably going to do a mini-sode on Deep Space Nine. Let's uh, it's, right. gonna, look, it's all going to happen. There's going to be plenty more of those to come. One thing I'd like to touch on before we finish, though, is sci-fi and video games. Oh. Because I know you guys yeah. have done a whole stack of research into, like, Everything else. books and film <laughs> and stuff yeah. like that. But for me, there's one... I've mentioned it before, but there's one particular video game that I'd like to sort of describe as what... It'd be. Look, it might even be hard sci-fi. And that is Outer Wilds. And I can't really say anything about it <laughs> because the core of the game is exploration, finding information, and then figuring out how to get out of a particular situation. So it's like for me to replay the game now, I could just finish it straight away. Right. It's not about leveling up or getting through yeah. stuff. It's just like finding a solution to something wow. based on the information that you find through exploring and gaining access, access to all this historical stuff. The music it is in it is incredible. The setting is these small, tiny, little compact planets. You're in a, a you're a cute alien. You're in a little spaceship that has realistic space physics, um, and you, so it's hard to yeah. navigate. Um, and there's all of these unique little planets that have their own story and their own stuff on them that you can go and explore. And you can probably just run around them in a few minutes. Uh, so they're really tiny. Um, so it's like this little micro universe. But overall, without giving anything away, because again. If you are a gamer, even if you're not, like this is the game to play. It is my favorite game of all time. It is absolutely incredible and it is a remarkable work of science fiction. Um, but overall, it ends up with that comfort thing that you were talking about where it's like through what is probably a pretty dark kind of concept, making you feel, you know, like a little bit more okay with the finality of things and your own, how small you are and all of that kind of thing. Um so yeah, I just wanted to touch on that because again, yeah. it's just yeah. like science fiction doesn't end at books and film. There's like tons of science science fiction in other entertainment, yeah. including video games. A lot of it is plastic and bad shtick and fucking easy money. Uh, but like <laughs> a lot of sci-fi literature is bad. Oh, um, no it's... doubt. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we haven't even talked about like pulp paperback comic stuff. books and yeah. all yeah. that sort of stuff as well. So there's so much of it out there. I am kind of excited though that we have kind of. I mean, for me, that we now have like a, a tiny s structure around the definition of sci-fi. I think for me, yeah. the, the concept of the Nova or the Novum yeah. was like, that clicked for me. Mm. That's like, okay, cool. So now now I can, now that's what sci-fi is. And I'll, when I'm going back and revisiting sci-fi that I love, be it a TV show or a book or whatever, I'm going to be searching for that. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to be looking for, oh, wait, so what is the Nova of this? What and creates this world? Exactly. Is it more like- uh, Star Wars then in that case because yeah. Star Wars you can't you don't really have that yeah unless you say maybe the force maybe yeah maybe the force but that's a bit magic isn't it yeah, yeah. it's a bit magic so I mean you can't say lightsabers because that doesn't make the universe that's just a weapon used by the wizard it's, it's demonstrably unnecessary yeah <laughs> yeah no exactly I mean like we've seen Andor it's fucking you don't need the lightsabers it's better anyway so uh <laughs> Rise up, comrade. <laughs> this is what I have Gosh. to say about that. There's so many things that we haven't even touched the surface of yeah. in this topic, which I love. So I mean, we have what? We have like literally a hundred and, no, I mean thousands of years, yeah. if we're talking <laughs> Gilgamesh, of people just having these incredible mm. imaginations of being able to take 
sort of structures that are around them and reflect them in something that it seems completely unimaginable and absurd. Yeah. Cities that fly in the sky that come to destroy mm. other cities uh, in a time where there are no like aeroplanes. It's <laughs> fucking chaos. It's insane that somebody thought of that. Uh, and, and yet also then making it kind of like a, this is what it's like to be invaded kind yeah. of story. You know what I mean? So it's like, we have thousands of years of lessons and creativity and exploration in storytelling that we could ostensibly call science fiction. Um, so, of course, we can't touch on it all. But yeah. uh, I've loved talking about this and we will talk about it more oh, <laughs> at length Certainly. in more specific minisodes yes. about specific films and I think this, we're we going to have so many minisodes coming off this topic. In, oh, yeah. It's going to be fun. Because it's, it's like literally just an opportunity for us to talk at length like the dorks we are <laughs> on, on the topic of a very specific thing we like. Exposing <laughs> ourselves a little bit. Yeah, they, no, after two seasons, no one realised that we're dorks. We got away with it <laughs> yeah. for this long. We fooled them. <laughs> Next time we'll do a genre that we don't like at all. At all. No, you, you mentioned horror. I think yeah. that'd be a really interesting uh, topic for us to get into because again, the whole core of the podcast is us trying to find joy in stuff. And yeah. It's like, even in stuff like we talked about caving and, and yeah. thing, in season one where it's like all of us are claustrophobes. That's a tricky one for us to get into. Horror will be very, very tricky for me and I know you to kind of yep. to, to get into, but like to find what people love about it would be a really interesting thing to get into next season as well. So I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, not just today, obviously, but if you've been with us for a while, if you've been with us since the beginning of season one, we're two years into this thing. That's the end of two full seasons of this podcast and we, oh. we, we couldn't be more proud. Hey, what's that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> round of applause from yeah. before. Yeah. Woo. Um, <laughs> we couldn't be more proud of, of this. Uh, we're, we're thrilled to have done this and we're, we're still having a great time so there's plenty more to come in the future as well thank you all and thank you especially to all of our patreon subscribers all of our patrons of everything you guys have been a terrific support for all of us and we really hope that you're enjoying the bonus content as well as being part of our community uh plenty more to come friends this is the end of season two i'm signing off we're doing it <laughs> this is the end this is you know, <laughs> I'm yelling because it's all in capitals at the end of the credits. <laughs> no animals were harmed in making this motherfucking this that monster weird of a fucking logo thing. thing that always like, who, who does that belong to? <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. We'll fucking see you next year. Bye. 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 Take care of each other, and we'll talk to you next year. Bye.